You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. time there was a podcast called the projection booth it was hosted by me mike white and by mr rob st mary you know you come in in diapers and you go out in diapers also back with us this week back after far too long is our friend fraulein von b good evening gentlemen it's great to be back in the booth with the both of you This week we're tackling a trio of films about men acting like children. We're going to be talking about the Australian film Bad Boy Bubby, the American film The Baby, and the Spanish film The Milky Life. First up, Bad Boy Bubby from 1993 was directed by Rolf Tahir and stars Nicholas Hope as Bubby, a man who has spent his entire life in a small room with his mother who has convinced him that the outside world is poison. There he enjoys an incestual relationship with her and a rather strained relationship with his cat. Things change when there's a new man in his family's life and he goes out to see the world for the first time. So, Fraulein, as our guest, what was your first impression of Bad Boy Bubby? Well, I found it to be incredibly dark, perverse, and yet comical. It can't, You can't help but to feel somewhat completely uncomfortable throughout the film, so naturally it was right up my alley. The uh, first half of the film is uh, is quite dark, and it goes some unexpected places. When I first started watching it, I thought, oh, man, this is going to be like that uh, really horrible um, – and I don't mean horrible in the in – you know, the bad way. I meant horrible as in that sort of uh, French school of filmmaking that came out in the 90s. I Stand Alone and all of that stuff that makes Taxi Driver look like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And then it switches about halfway through and uh, becomes uh, rather light and fun. So uh, tonally, it's probably one of the more interesting movies I've uh, ever seen. Yeah, I had heard about this movie for years and years. I know our friends over on Outside the Cinema covered it. And there's a lot of talk. Over on Outside the Cinema, they have covered a lot of cannibal films, especially like Cannibal Holocaust. They talk a lot about um, violence against animals on the film. So I knew there was going to be an issue with Cat in this movie, and I thought it was going to be much more of a thing. So I was just like, the whole time I'm dreading, and then luckily within the first 15 minutes, that's kind of taken care of. And then after that, it's more violence against humans, which I can really uh, get behind most of the time, especially some of the violence that's in this film. But yeah, very dark, very twisted, but also super enlightening. And I think that there's a lot of great things that are happening with this film. At first, he did seem to spend a lot of time alone. Mum looked after him. Although sometimes she called him her bad boy, Bubby. And there was always Cat to play with. 
then one day... Hey, son, you can call me Pop. Pop came back, and everything changed. Pop, Pop, Pop. Oh, oh, all right, don't go making a big thing of it. Bad boy Bubby went on a voyage of discovery. And the world he confronted was funny. Get off the ride, you fucking poster bastard! <laughs> Tragic. Loving and hateful. Get off the fucking ride, you fucking crazy bastard! This is oh, shit. Honest. Cat. And hypocritical. God doesn't like and totally unlike any you've ever seen before. God, you've got great tits. Great big whoppers of things. We proudly present an extraordinary film by Rolf de Heer, starring Nicholas Hope as bad boy Bubby, and delightfully supported by Claire Benito, Ralph Cottrell, and Carmel Johnson. Bad boy puppy. All he needs is love. So let's talk a little bit about the plot. We mentioned right up front that Bubby lives with his mom, and that's what probably the first half hour of the film, really kind of the first act, is him with his mom in this little tiny room which apparently the walls moved on the set so they would make it smaller and smaller as things were going along and he has never seen the outside world she's convinced him that the outside world is poison so he wears a she wears a gas mask to go out and he's just stuck there and dependent upon her 100% I don't think the director wasted any time to jump into the dynamic of the mother and son relationship as a matter of fact, you see her bathing in front of him where most cases, you know, mothers or women in general or just people tend to be more modest and he's putting on her makeup and then boom, you see them in bed. So there was no gentle easing into um, just how they're interacting on a daily basis and it was never heavily implied. Oh, it was right there in your face. And that's when you're just like, Oh my, (laughs) so that's how it is. Isolation will have a tendency to drive you to the behavior that you mentioned how um, with the whole violence towards the cat. Well, that's what isolation will do to you. I mean, you either treat that like, you know, Tom Hanks treated that volleyball in Castaway, or in this case, you kind of just not know what to do with it and you end up wrapping it up in saran wrap and it stops breathing and you do you don't know why so it makes perfect sense to me and um as a a cat owner that did not offend my being at all it just made a lot of sense we're subjected basically to the same stuff he is because we get no outside view of the world outside of that door and outside of this little room that they all apparently live in until he breaks out the only sort of um, understanding that the outside world is not as the mother explains it to be is when his father shows up 
who happens to be a priest, and that whole dynamic starts to uh, change the room and the tone between himself and his mother and all of that stuff. So we get the idea then that um, something definitely, I mean, if we, we knew things were wrong then, but when it opens, we're led to believe that maybe there's been some sort of nuclear war and there's very little left and there's people living in hovels all over the place. And it's just interesting the way it's set up. Exactly. The inside definitely gives you that post-apocalyptic Walking Dead feel where you don't think anything could possibly be working or there could be any sort of life force outside those walls. So when Bubby is actually kicked out and he's looking around and he realizes, oh, wow, I don't need a gas mask to breathe all this after all. And it looks like life is continuing just perfectly normal or what could be perfectly normal to everyone else, to Bubby. It's all very foreign. You just sit there and think to yourself, oh, what a lying bitch. Well, she's got a line in there where she says, Poison don't get you. And God will. Don't you bloody forget it. Don't you bloody forget it. Putting him in fear through the outside world or through some supernatural force that's going to get you if you don't watch it. When you talked about how we experience everything through Bubby. This isn't too much of a film where they use a subjective camera, but the sound is all 100% subjective. The way that we recorded the sound, the actor Nicholas Hope has uh, a very distinct hairstyle in this film through most of it. And underneath the hair that he has on the side of his head, he has two microphones, one on either side. And most of the film, we are experiencing all the sound through those two microphones. So we are hearing what Bubby is hearing the way he's hearing it, which I find to be very fascinating and a really interesting way of kind of making us identify with this character who we might not necessarily want to identify with. I mean, because Bubby is... I was reminded a lot while I was watching this movie of the film being there and this whole idea of Chauncey Gardner living in this one particular place. And then he kind of has to leave the world when the guy who runs the place dies and him going out and being mistaken for a, someone who is much more wise than he is. And he is this kind of high functioning autistic type guy or uh, developmentally delayed and with that you know chauncey is so much more of this kind of lovable type of person bubby not necessarily so much you never necessarily know what he's going to do next he lives by his own kind of internal logic doesn't know how to react to the world that's outside of him and sometimes reacts in violence He's never really had to deal with anyone except his mother and then later his father, which becomes rather abusive and violent there, even even more so than um, his mother. And this leads to lots of, I would say, small social issues that he has, such as he's walking down the street and there's like a whole group of women that come out of this place and he like grabs their breast, which was just something that he used to do with his mother. So he doesn't understand why they're all freaking out. And everything he would say to other people, any dialogue he had with other people, he heard from his mother and from his father. So basically, he's nothing more than a walking, talking parrot because he can't really form thoughts or sentences on his own. It's it's essentially like he's a toddler, how he's trying to learn how to talk and communicate. So if he hears his mother saying, you know, 
I'll beat the crap out of you. He ends up saying it to somebody else because he thinks that's normal dialogue, that it's healthy dialogue. I love the when he finally he gets with this rock band at one point and he's up on stage and he's basically parroting all of the things that he's heard from his mother and from pop. And it just becomes almost like this performance art kind of thing. And people don't know what the hell's going on, but they love it. They eat it up. That's one of the most beautiful parts about this movie is that no one really pays attention to the fact that this person could be somewhat disturbed, that this person was abused. They just, the whole movie just basically, when he's out of that house, he's just going about, you know, like you said, the performance art and people just think they, they take it as, oh, he's clever. He wrote this and no one really assumes anything. It's like everyone's in the cloud of their own. They don't stop to think, wow, something could really be seriously wrong with this person. They just take it as him being colorful or eccentric, which I find hysterical. I think there's a level of that when we see people who are performers. There's a certain aspect of us that go, oh, well, of course they've sat down and intellectualized whatever it is that they're doing. So therefore, it's perfectly okay. They may act like they're crazy on stage, but they're not really crazy in their personal life. So I think that it it's almost a commentary back on the audience saying that, well, maybe not. Like, maybe this guy's so punk rock because that's just the way he is. He didn't sit down and go, I want to be the next Iggy Pop or Nick Cave or something. I love, too, that it gets away with a lot because he's wearing the priest collar through so much of the film. 
And there is so much of a, a great religious bent to this film. I mean, the line that you said earlier, Rob, about if the poison doesn't get you, God will. And just some of the discussions that they have around religion, around God. There's a really, really great part towards the end of the film where a guy is talking to him and he's standing on these huge pictures or paintings, I guess they are of all these different types of religious figures and him trying to lay it out to Bubby as far as who hates who, who's killed, who, who's done more. And I love too, that Bubby becomes the cling wrap killer. So rather than saying that these people killed this other group, you know, these people cling wrapped this group and then these people, cling wrap this other one and every time they cut back to the guy he's standing on a different painting kind of showing which group he's talking about and just this whole idea of like trying to explain religion and what's going on in a world absolutely crazy to this fellow crazy person just such a wonderful wonderful scene this mob have been trying for centuries to cling wrap this mob even though they share the same god mind you this mob have been getting pretty good at cling wrapping lately. And this mob's got the same god as well. But they've had a fair go at cling wrapping that first mob. They've been trying to cling wrap that second mob for a good couple of thousand years. And they pretty well succeeded in cling wrapping just about all of this mob. Who never did much cling wrapping to anyone but themselves. Then there's this lot, a different God altogether. You'd think that would help, but it doesn't. See, this mob cling-wrapped about half a million of that first mob 40 or 50 years ago, and they've been at it ever since. But they've all done their fair share of killing or being killed, and it's all pointless. The thing, Bubby, is... Don't be like them. No matter how mad you get at someone, don't kill them. Ever. Bobby don't cling wrap them. Me pop now. Talking like that, you'll be running the country soon enough. No, no more excuses. No more cling wrapping. Okay? Bobby? With the priest collar, we have Bubby kind of being two people. He's Bubby and he's Pop. And it's a matter of whether he's wearing the collar sometimes, but really it's more of, is he the person who is vulnerable or is he the person who is taking charge? You know, Pop is in charge of things. Pop's really kind of an asshole, whereas Bubby allows things to happen to him. There are moments where Bubby does things where he doesn't mean any harm, but there are moments where he's Pop, where he is definitely much more of a defensive person. It's definite role-playing that you see in young children when they pretend to be something in order to be brave. And I guess you could say you see that a lot in abuse victims as well. So it's, it's definitely playing dress up 
like when I was little and I would play dress up one minute, I would put something on that belonged to my mother and I was the caregiver. I would then put on my father's military boots and I was the prick of misery. So <laughs> it's it's how he's trying to identify. You You definitely see that in children. I know I experienced it. I think maybe that was also a way to show us that Bubby may be in the body of a man, but he's definitely got the brain of a child. And he was conditioned that way. And something that goes along with that, and I've seen this with kids, I think when we get to a certain age as children and then teens and definitely as adults, there's a certain understanding that we have of the world and where we can go and what we can do. And he doesn't seem to have those restraints. So, for example, when he meets the band, he just hangs out with the band. He, at one point, goes to this print shop and just walks right behind the counter and goes into the back where they're making all this stuff. Like, the average person on the street who walked into that print shop would not, like, go behind the counter and walk in the back and look at all the machines and do all that stuff because they know you can't go back there. Like, what are you doing, you know? So to him, there's no separation. It's like if he wants to go somewhere, he wants to do something, he just does it because he doesn't understand that there are certain, you know, social constraints, I guess, or certain manners of being around people uh, that they've sort of set up and they expect you to kind of follow along with. Exactly. When we're young, we are taught what boundaries are. You can't go out there. You can't do this. Don't touch that and all that stuff. The only person Bubby had to listen to was his mother. She was the one and only authority. And with her out of the picture, there was no one ever telling him, you can't do that. And of course, wearing the priest collar, that allowed him to get away with a lot more stuff because let's face it, oh, he's a man of God. Uh, Do I really want to tread there and tell him, no, you can't do this? So... That's why when he has a collar and he's pop, he has that authority. He gets to make the rules. So no mom, no rules. Free will. A man of God who eventually finds true love in this woman named Angel. And the scene of her with her parents. Oh, my God. That is one of the most horrific scenes to me. That is almost worse seeing what they're doing to her compared to what Bubby's mom did to him. Just, oh, just outright verbal abuse. And even to the, you know, again, verbal abuse, a little bit of physical abuse, and then using the um, the, the word of God against her. I mean, it is so similar to the experience that Bubby had. And just, oh, God, that dinner scene just made my skin crawl. Our daughter has a healthy appetite, don't you think? Mother, don't stir. Be quiet. Let your mother speak uninterrupted. Thank you, dear. We tried to bring her up as best we could, but she's been rather a disappointment to us. Be the first time you didn't finish your dinner. I find fat people so... so gross. So unfortunate, of course, but so... ugly. What do you think, Mr. Pop? Me think Angel will be beautiful. She's a fat slut. <laughs> what you say, dear? Better he know that she's a fat slut. <laughs> if God had wanted us to be fat, he'd have made us all the same way, wouldn't he? But he didn't. God doesn't like fat people. Fat 
spit are an abomination in his eyes. Fuck you, God. Strike me down if you dare. Angel would be beautiful. God be a useless cunt. Why you be bad to Angel? You can go now, Mr. Pot. We shall pray for you. Get out of here! And I think the reason, of course, you know, if you were to sit there and you... I, I know what I would have done if I were... I'm a very <laughs> confrontational person... So if I were sitting down and one of my partners were being verbally assaulted or physically assaulted by their parents, you're damn right, I'm going to put on my boots and start kicking. But I think Bubby didn't do anything about it, not because, oh, gee, it's not my place because he can identify with that. He thought that was normal because that's exactly what his mother and eventually what his father had done to him. So again, he was never taught that that would be construed as domestic violence but he doesn't know that, so that's why he just sat there and he was just doing what he was doing and witnessing all this. So while the rest of us were trying to turn away and adjust ourselves in our seat, he was just sitting there like an idiot and thinking, la, la, la. And that's even more disturbing, too. Just adds to it. Tonally, the the shifting in there is, is quite interesting uh, for me uh, because normally you don't see film like that where it starts off that bleak and then it becomes you know a little lighter and then there's there's all these different aspects it it really does kind of paint with all the different tones in the palette and and that was one of the things i really appreciated about it when i watched it because like i said at the beginning when i first started watching it i'm like you know i saw i stand alone in the theater i've seen this you know this sort of French brutalism or whatever you want to call it. I can't remember. There's like a whole sort of raft of them that came out in the 90s. And I was like, oh, is it going to be that? Like, is what I thought to myself. And then as it went along, I was like pleasantly surprised that the director was able to sort of balance off all of this stuff and uh, and really give us something. I mean, I mean, we feel for him in the beginning as an abuse victim and someone who's being, you know, uh, sheltered to the point of suffocation, basically, and and that's what I thought of the the, the cling wrap as uh, as a nice symbolic statement. I think that if it was uh, brutal all the way through, I think people would be able to deal with it uh, on a certain level. I think that this uh, these tonal shifts, to a certain extent, some people might be like, ah, I don't I don't know, you know, if they can handle that, if they can handle being able to laugh after having a half hour of of abuse and incest. Oh, I was able to still chuckle after a while from watching Solo, so I guess we're just two totally different people. But no, what I <laughs> No, I mean I, I didn't I didn't have a problem with it. I'm just saying that other people who watch it might go, Oh my god, you know, this is bleak. How can you laugh at this point? And I'm just like, Oh yeah, I can. I- I definitely smiled at the end where, you know, spoiler alert, where Bubby and this woman are together and they have children. And I just sit there and think, wow, Bubby is so resilient. He literally bounced back. He was assaulted at home. He was assaulted in a brief uh, stint in prison. He has been neglected, yet he finds this woman. He grows up. He becomes a pop himself, but not his father. So it kind of gives you this idea that, wow, I guess anybody, if you just keep trying maybe, or just walk 
blindly going forward, you can survive almost anything. So it kind of makes me think of my friends that say, well, I had a rough childhood. I just want to show them this and say, see, <laughs> you can you can be better too. Which is interesting that this whole thing ends with this kind of feeling of hope, you know, because we have gone from so fucking bleak to this idyllic, you know, kids running around the yard chasing the dad and the mom standing there and just this, you know, wonderful kind of beginning of blue velvet type, you know, <laughs> suburban world, which I just was like, oh, wow, you know, d- it, normally it would go. 180 degrees. Normally we start with that picture and we end up completely bleak, but no, this film has the balls to go the opposite way. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy about the director, Ralph DeHaer, is he isn't afraid to take chances. And I'm hoping, I've been talking with him this week, I'm hoping that we'll be able to have him on the show sometime this fall. And when it comes to his work, he's done so many different types of film. I mean, just a few years ago, he did a completely silent science fiction film. And then he does, you know, he did this wonderful film about aboriginals called 10 canoes. And he's just all over the map when it comes to what type of movies he's making, but it's not like, you know, the schizophrenic type of filmmaking. It's, you know, he has a purpose for all this stuff and to hear also, the way that Bad Boy Bubby was made with all of these different cinematographers coming in and working on this and the way that it was shot sequentially, which I think really helps out when it comes to uh, Nicholas Hope's performance and being able to build on that as he goes along. I mean, just amazing kind of stuff. So with that, let's take a break and play an interview with the cinematographer, the main cinematographer of Bad Boy Bubby, Mr. Ian Jones. How did you get started in the business? I'm not a young man anymore. When uh, our our schooling system at the time wasn't really geared up for media as such, but for some reason I decided I wanted to be a producer or a director at, at my secondary school, as we call them in Australia. There wasn't really any avenue to fulfil, but there were TV stations, so I did write letters and apply for any apprenticeships or any... Um, work experience. It wasn't really known as work experience back in those days. I dare say it was purely just um, uh, trying to get on in a cadetship, I suppose they're called. And through that, there was a private company that was producing programs for television, and they took me on as a, I dare say, work experience. They had a trainee, I suppose you call it. We have no certificates from that, but they trained up kids and used kids to fulfill roles on their sets and on which was videotape interior and you know, 16 mil film exterior so and the rest is history after that you've been doing uh, cinematography all the way back to what early 90s what was your first gig so it was a trainee room and then out of that you got opportunities to go into different um into different departments and one of those was i actually went into the neck cutting room at this company and was there for six months, but decided that wasn't for me. And then I virtually went out onto straight onto location as I suppose you'd say crap loader. Um, we call it you call them second ACs, but crap loads English term. And that, I've really been in the camera department all my life. So from that point on, um, I've worked up through. I've been a loader, 
focus puller operator, main AB operator, Steadicam operator, and cinematographer. You have been involved with some of the most notable Australian films that have ever happened, like Cry in the Dark, Dogs in Space. So many of these films where I'm just like, oh my God, you know, Dead Calm. It's like these things are Australian cinema to me, and it's just amazing that you were involved with so many of them. It's all, I suppose, in some ways I could say I was born too late or too early. We all look at the way, you know, how things are. I mean, I'm, it's, it's a great transition. I have to say I've been very lucky to be part of this film into, into the data world, not saying that we particularly like the data world per se, but in fairness, it, it is a very much a modern and um, uh, inevitable pathway that needed to take place. But going back... Uh, when I was around, I suppose the Australian film industry had been through, it had earlier than me, it had been quite strong in a very small um, way. And there was a pockets of work. When we came along and the era that I came up in was very much an expanding Australian film industry with, you know, people wanting to make films and wanting to be involved with this, you know, this magical process in regards to you know, getting scripts together and shooting something we did all this as kids within within the company I worked for, which was Crawford Productions in this um, traineeship. We all wanted to use the equipment on weekends and have a bit of fun shooting this and shooting that and writing scripts. I mean, I have to say the scripts were probably secondary to getting out there and shooting stuff. And um, it wasn't very much in Australia at that time was very much the films that were getting to the surface or coming up through were all anamorphic. I mean, in my focus pulling days was... Or, First AC days, I never pulled focus on anything spherical. It was always anamorphic. I mean, Australia was um, where every every film was anamorphic. It was just an amazing era from that point of view, which may not mean a lot to a lot of people, but to us as filmmakers, that wide screen was always something that we enjoyed. And, and in truth, I suppose the Australian outback sort of gleamed or wanted that, I suppose, or required that. It was sort of part of the, uh, the package, <laughs> the vista you wanted to show, I suppose. I've just been lucky, I dare say. I've made steps. You know, when I was a loader, I knew I could. I wanted to pull focus, and when I was a focus puller, I realised I'd like to do some operating. Steady can came around. That you know, I had I've had quite a lot to do with Garrett Brown over the years, and a gentleman, one of the first gentlemen here, um, was involved called Toby Phillips, and then I picked up the mantle after Toby and became quite got quite a good reputation with the steady cam, which then put me into films as far as being A camera and B camera operator on films. I mean, I hang, hang my mantle on the fact that I was an A-camera operator uh, doing Steadicam. So I got involved with rights of Fred Skepsi. I operated a number of films for Fred Skepsi, uh, Ian Baker being the DOP. And uh, we had a great relationship. Uh, Lee McKenzie, the focus puller, uh, we had a great relationship and did a number of films together and enjoyed uh, one. There was Russia House, Mr. Bazaburo, and uh, before that was Cry in the Dark or Evil Angels. But... Um, yeah, there are good relationships, robust relationships, strong films, quite diverse in some ways, um, you know, very fine in, in character roles as well. We enjoyed the cast, we were with the cast, responded to us as a camera department. We had um, good relationships with all the, the, the cast and that was driven by Fred, of course. Fred has quite a charismatic, charismatic that's the word, relationship with his cast. So that, that obviously flowed across to us. But we had a... You know, I had an enjoyable time. My relationship with, say, the, the George Millers of this world, George was doing, um, I think, the, the third of the 
Mad Max films, the second or third, I think it was, and uh, the gentleman who had been doing steady cam, he enjoyed the steady cam, he loved the steady cam, so did Dean Simler, they loved the steady cam just, just by movement. There was always more than one camera on Fred's, uh, on uh, George's uh, films, but so the steady cam was always there amongst one of those other cameras, and so Toby had um, had a relationship with Garrett, and they'd, they'd formed quite a relationship. The steady cam was working well, he, that took him to America, and, and so um, I picked up the mantle, but that relationship blossomed with George and also with Phil Noyce. Just by the nature of, we used the tool as a quite a robust tool. You know, we used it in quite interesting circumstances and extended its um, how it could be used and involvement, and and that came back to us as operators being capable of um, wanting to go there, but also delivering the goods as well. Mm. Yeah, it's just an interesting time, I suppose. <laughs> Era. <laughs> What do you enjoy more, doing the Steadicam operation or the DP stuff? No, DP. I gave up the Steadicam quite a few years back because one of the things that does you got to be careful about if, you, if you're trying to move forward, I suppose, in your career, and I'm saying it is forward necessarily, but if you want to explore a lot of things, the longer you specialise in something, you get caught into that area. It's very difficult to be seen in to being able to do other things. And I actually do believe I've got quite a creative um, mind when it comes to as a DP, so I'm really happy now to support Steadicam operators coming. You know, I'll bring a Steadicam operator on, and and I love to see them working, and I love to contribute to what they can offer up to the film. So I enjoy that that role, you know, that management role of of a say a young or established operator that can deliver. As you and, and you probably appreciate, as you get a bit older, you you can't physically do those things anymore. So. Um, yeah, so no, no, it's the young man's game, really, or girls' game, your ladies' game. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure those things probably get heavier as the years get go by. Um, I suppose they have, and in some ways they haven't. I mean, they have lightened. I mean, there's no doubt about the the red and the Alexa and so forth. That you know, those cameras. I mean, the Alexa can be quite large now, but you know, when you add on a few things, but the red itself, in all due respects, can be quite compact and compressed. So, but that's it. it that's part of the issue is the weight, but it's also, um, um, you know, you've got to, you do have to have a sixth sense about you as a steady cam operator, a good one. You know, framing is just that is so important, and um, if you don't nail the frame, you know you. You need to you need to be able to do that every time because on the other side of that camera is a cast member who is delivering emotionally and an emotional message through the through the script, you know, obviously to the audience. So you have to be better than them if that's the way to put it. You do have to nail it. So you have to be good on your frame. You've got to make it work. You've got to give it the feel. You've got to be able to take control, as it were. So good steady up cam operators, you know, are worth their weight in gold. <laughs> was seeing red, was that your first director of photography gig? It was. Well done. That's good research. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie yet. What is that one like? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> You've got to learn somewhere. <laughs> the producer of that is a gentleman called Tony Llewellyn-Jones, and it's his wife who directed it. I still am associated with um, uh, Tony through another director I work for, Paul Cox, and he's uh, Tony's done uh, has produced for Paul in the past. But Tony and I still have a great relationship. It's fantastic. How did you meet uh, Ralph the Hare? 
Well, funnily enough, we'd met, and I didn't realise it on a very early show called Against the Wind, the TV show, one of these early Australian stories about, you know, the, the development of Australia and so forth um, in a series format. That he, and he was out of film school. He was doing some, I think he was doing some film school on set uh, work experience. And I think I was, I'd just come back from overseas. And I was back loading again uh, or second AC on this, TV series. I don't remember the contact, but Rolf decided. Rolf thought I was quite a uh, strong-willed young man. <laughs> so the next contact took place when he was doing Dingo, and um, he they wanted Steady King and the Kimberleys, and so I was actually on Highlander two in Argentina at the time. And so when that call came through, yes, yeah, so we met. You know, you could literally say in the outback of Australia around a campfire. He was, um, during that film of Dingo, it was a co-production with the French, Denis Lenoir, was a DOP, had a uh, focus port, first AC was French, and so we were literally in the, the hills of the Kimberleys, um, quite isolated, and um, I came along with a Steadicam, they wanted Steadicam through, the, through this particular sequence, we ended up on top of hills and all over the place, and as um, Rolf said, I was a, I basically picked everyone up and said, let's get on with it, because it was getting a little bit lackadaisical. It wasn't being driven very well. He felt a little bit intimidated by Denny. Denny wasn't really motivating it as much as he'd hoped it to happen. So all of a sudden I've arrived and I was a bit of a bit of a force to be reckoned with. And so we were trouncing through the, you know, through the sand and through riverbeds and up hills. And he liked the inspiration that he got from myself, which, you know, happy to hear. And so we, we had a fun time. I think it was about... A week to ten days, and we had a great time in that. I'll call it a hostile environment, but it's it's a very endearing environment. There's so many, you know, with the sunrises, sunsets, in river crossings, on mountain ranges, on ridges. Just you know, general. Um, the Kimberleys are a magic part of the world. So we had a great time, and that was us. At that point, I think we sat around a campfire one night and. He had this film called Bad Boy Bubby. He had a concept of how he liked to shoot it, and so. He, in principle, after, I suppose, halfway through, he said, would I be interested in being involved? And he said, absolutely. What were some of the challenges that you had on that one? <laughs> Bubby was, uh, well, first up, Rolf uh, had said that he, because he never had the money, he wanted different DPs. To sh- uh, well, it wasn't a case of wanting different DPs. He had no money, so he said like, every weekend he'd shoot a little bit more of the film with whoever cared to come and help shoot it. <laughs> so that's how the script was put to me. I probably do need one DP to do a lot more than others, and would you be interested? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So eventually, once the script had been finalised, I think um, the, the money that he he had um, um, in Australia, he would have government funding. The government funding body at the time read the script and said, no way, don't want to know about this film. <laughs> and so that was a bit, you know, obviously... <laughs> I, you know, you could, in seeing the film now and seeing the script or imagining the script, you probably imagine it was probably a bit confrontational for and a bit of controversy in there. So Domenico Bapaccio, who's from Italy, he uh, read the script and asked Rolf yeah, how much money. And so Domenico came to the party and said, I can offer you, you know, some money. So that was actually a great stepping stone for Rolf because that meant that this, the funding body actually needed to, they actually, had no reason not then to invest. So they did invest eventually. So that put the film on a different level. So Rolf then said, would I shoot the whole film? And I said, yes, I'm happy to, that'd be great. 
then um, we were in pre-production and Rolf come back to me and said, look, I'd still like to experiment with having a different person. You can call them DPs, you can call them what you will. Shoot uh, in the middle. He calls it the first chapter, the middle chapter, and the third chapter. The, the first, the second chapter is basically when Bubby goes out into the wide world, and the third chapter is when he comes back and he realizes, you know, um, the world has changed when he goes back into the into the house. So he, um, uh, I said, no, that's fine. It'll be a bit unusual. So. And it's 32, I think. I think I'm included there a couple of times, so it's probably only really 29 or something like that. But So <laughs> the idea that was anyone that he'd sort of had contact over the years and out of the camera department, so they could have been loaders and there were some film students in there. There were some um, ex-DOPs in there who now either production managers or producers and so forth. And the idea was they would just get a page. that The, page, the scene that they were shooting is all they were given. They were not given... The script. They weren't given character breakdown. Basically, Rolf just wanted them to arrive and take control, principally of writing. I stayed. I still operated, and I still had control of the grips. So, in principle, they came in and, and just went about the writing process as they saw that scene. They were welcome to put filtration on the camera. They were welcome to distort any images. They had that welcome. They had an open slate. There was no. Whatever they wish for, they they could have basically. So that's really in principle how it worked. It, yeah, it worked well. I, it had its moments. There's no doubt that you probably appreciate that, and probably the world public would appreciate that. But it, in general, it was successful. In we got behind a few times because some some folk, and that's fair enough. They wanted to write a lot more than other folk. Um, took a bit more time. Rolf did get frustrated by some of that. He felt that there's probably you know, an emphasis in that area, in that writing area, greater than what the scene was being um, shown or told. And in some ways, Rolf is a very much, isn't, he enjoys writing, he understands writing, but he would prefer to keep it in a simple sense than a, a complicated sense. From the way you describe it, it is amazed that this film even got made at all with just the potential for chaos that was there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I think in one day we had potentially, apart from myself being on set, but we could have up to four DPs on set. <laughs> You'd roll off one scene into the next scene. I think that's what we got to that was quite funny. We all giggled about that, just going, well, this is quite unusual. You know, it never, well, I'll say it's never been done before and it probably never been, you know, it, it hadn't been done before. Whether it would be done again, who knows? But um, um, the idea was to bring. Um, I have an opinion about this, which I won't go into, but the idea was to bring that, un, you know, he's seeing the world for the first time and who's to say a right is a right and who's to say a car right does that and who's to say green is green and who's to say there's not distortion when you look at something through a window and, you know, it's all of those coming up through as we're born and come through life, all these things are put in perspective one way or another. So for him as a character, as Bubby coming to the world, what's to say that these what we might call unusual things are happening are unusual. Why aren't they normal? You know, and and that's all in, in the writing as well. The way he spoke and so forth was part of that process. There was also a thing called binaural sound in the film. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. We record sound naturally on films in a singular motion, where you have track one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Binaural sound has much more surround sound, and, and it's captured as that style of sound. I'm not a sound person, so I'm not totally okay with the whole process of it. But the idea of the binaural sound was that um, um, that it had a if you had a train that went by, and when you can mix this, there's no doubt about that. But 
it, you you were picking the sound up on a microphone from the right side moving through to the left side, and that's that's all pre-mixed. It's all happening as you're recording it, and that's what binaural sound tends to be does. And we know in films we mix all that today, but this was again going back to one of Rolf's perspectives is the idea of the binaural sound is because within Bubby's mind there's always mixture of noises he's never heard before, whether they are a car, a tram, people talking people screaming, people yelling, the rain coming, all of those sort of noises, which should all be crash-banging on top of him. So Rolf was in this, hoping to get this in a much more natural way, which he did. So what happened was that he, the, and the microphones were actually on his head, pointed out to us. So wherever he pointed his head, he was actually picking up the sound of what was happening, which you may find that's a little bit unusual from the point of view of camera looking at him, you're going to get camera noise. But having said all, avoiding the camera noise, having said that, it did, did create quite a, um, quite a different um, soundscape for the film. Is that why his hair was so puffy? Could have been. Um, could have been. You picked that up. But So at that time, radio mics, as we know them, weren't particularly so expensive and they weren't particularly used as much, probably in Australia, they may have been in the States, I'm not sure. So they are actually, um, Rolf brought in a specialist uh, person who made those radio mics which were put into the top of his head. So on the left-hand side and the right-hand side of his head, he had little microphones with radio mic-type you know, receivers or, um, uh, on them um, or transmitters, and um, that was then recorded by um, you know, the sound recorders. So they were for, we spent more time on those, in fairness. They had to be tuned in quite, quite a bit. But in fairness, that sound is used in the film, so they did work. There wasn't a special micro, binaural microphone around at the time, which they brought in, and they bring that in over the top as well to pick up a little bit more perspective. Was there Steadicam in that film? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I did the Steadicam as well on that. So I lit it and also operated the Steadicam. I thought, especially when he comes out into the world the first time, it feels like that scene yeah. is... It's disorienting, but in a good way because it's really expressing how he's feeling. Yeah, and that's the, yeah, the general message you're trying to, I think, sell the audience. <laughs> Even with this kind of controlled chaos, it sounds like you had a, a pretty good time working on this film. I mean, uh, yes, um, positively yes. The, the 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 beautiful thing about it has its frustrations working with Rolf is that um, the crews are smaller, so we don't have. Um, you know, traditionally large departments. So they are smaller departments. The frustration with that is that you may not have all the tools in the toolbox that you require. But having said that, Rolf is very pragmatic about what's achievable, not achievable, um, how much can be with, how much can't be with. So he works within, he is very much a dictator regarding the amount of money that he wants to spend and equally what can be spent. So, and how a shot is devised um, through that. So, that takes away then some of your frustration as a DP, you know, wanted to contribute a little bit more here, a bit more there. Ultimately, you go, no, no, well, that's what we can achieve. And that's a really nice feeling because you know that you're achieving that scene within the realms of what's what will work, which is your positive thoughts. And then you move into the next scene um, knowing that, you know, you, re- you regroup and move on to there. Schedule-wise is always that Rolf always puts time in for the schedule. So whereas you might be trying to, in some worlds, you've been shooting a feature in four weeks or, you know, some get to six and, you know, the luxury ones are 12 or 13. You know, Rolf is roughly around a seven-week uh, shoot, but it's it's um, contained. And that's at seven weeks, is you can afford a day not to work because things went a bit pear-shaped or something's not quite working. 
So it's, you can you do have that meet on the schedule, which is just just lovely. Thanks to Mr. Jones for coming on the show. We have links as to where people can keep up with him over our website, projection-booth.com. This week's a little unusual, and I have to say it's probably like our election special where we had three films. So instead of focusing on just one, we're talking about three that are kind of connected. And the next on the plate is The Baby. Directed by Ted Post, this 1973 film tells the tale of a man who's being treated as a baby for his entire life. He lives with his mother and two wicked stepsisters, and it's up to a new social worker, Mrs. Gentry, to save Baby from his family. So, um, I guess, initial impressions, and we'll start with you, our guest. Thank you. It. What else can I say? It was glorious, it was cheesy from beginning to end. Well, the end, of course, is one of those big surprises. It's not as dark as Bad Boy Bubby, but it still has some, you know, clearly this is forced infantilism. It's bleak, but there's definitely happy moments in it, and there's definitely a very morbid, twisted, happy ending, which I'm sure we'll get to as uh, we go further with this film. So definitely another film that's two thumbs up from my end. I saw this one a few months ago when it was on TCM Underground, where they show, for me, some of the best films that have ever been aired on television, and a lot of films that aren't available on DVD. Fortunately, this one is available on DVD in a, a great package from Severn Films. Uh, this movie, holy shit. Wow. I've, I had heard of it, but I had never seen it, and I'm so glad that I took the time to watch it. The main thing in my notes I put down about the mother is I go, makes Joan Crawford look like Carol Brady. I just <laughs> think that the woman in here, she looks like Joan Crawford. Like I think that they were trying to do that on purpose, and this is obviously – Almost 10 years before the film, Mommy Dearest, but I believe the book may have been out by then. I think so, too, and I had the exact same shock reaction. I found this film by accident while shopping, like I find a lot of my films, and that's my excuse I'm sticking to. And I just kept checking the credits, the Internet Movie Database. I'm like, why the hell is that a relative of Joan Crawford? I mean, she was almost a splitting image, but with, of course, a deeper voice. And I think... So she Not only was she casted deliberately, she was definitely channeling Joan Crawford with the idea that she loves her children, but she resents them at the same time. And she ruled with an iron fist, so that was very effective. I have to say, I was really turned on by this film. I mean, Ruth Roman, to me, absolutely gorgeous as Mrs. Wadsworth. She's this older lady, but she just had it going on. And then the two women that played her daughters, um, Marianna Hill and uh, Susan Zenner, these women have it going on. Yeah, I, I was a little jealous of David Mooney as the baby, you know, just uh, <laughs> being the center of attention for all these ladies until he was getting a cattle prod later on in the film. But otherwise, the negative but, reinforcement. 
Yes, <laughs> yes. And that's the whole thing. It's what I love about this film is, you know, we, we start off with this idea of um, Mrs. Gentry, uh, Anne Gentry, played by Anjanette Comer, and she's it's really kind of weird. She's like looking through all these photos and there's this older woman with her and they're kind of going back and forth and we're not really sure what's going on. And then she comes in to this situation of the Wadsworth family where we have mom, the two daughters and this, what, 25 year old man. I think he's supposed to be, they just call baby. And she, Mrs. Gentry, is so interested in this case and really wants to help Baby out. And you keep wondering as you're watching it, is this guy really developmentally delayed or is he being kept this way by these women? And sometimes it seems like there's a glint of intelligence behind his eyes, but for the most part, he's just kind of goo-goo-guying through his roles like crawling around on all fours and just really playing it up as a baby. And it's, is he really that way? What's the story here? And the movie just keeps you guessing through the whole thing, which is tough to do for, especially for people that are, you know, fairly movie savvy. And when it came to that ending, man, I had no idea. I was completely floored. And I'll tell you, even watching it the second time, I couldn't remember what the ending was. So I was floored a second time when I saw it. (laughs) There are uh, little uh, notes that she puts along the path as the social worker, and she talks about her husband. And I think we're under the impression in the early go that her husband has died or he's not around anymore. And um, we're going to get into spoilers again on this one because I think we need to in order to really talk about some of the thematics. But we get – at least I was getting this sense of mission that she lost her personal life in some way and she's dedicated to the work and she picked this case because it seems so extreme that she really wanted to help. And by the time we get to the end, that may not be the case. Our perception of the situation, it, it's very, I would say kind of, dark and twilight zone-ish in a particular way where they get us to think a certain way, but by the end, she may be just as bad as uh, the mother and the evil stepsisters. At one point, she talks about Baby needing a playmate, and for just a hot second, I thought, wouldn't that be weird if she wanted to be infantilized and wanted to be Baby's playmate? And that would have taken the movie in a whole different thing, but in the scheme of this film... It would have been just as logical as the way that things really played out because the whole thing is up in the air. You know, it is anybody's guess what's going to happen here. To say that she could potentially be as bad as the mother and the sisters, let's take a quick look at how each woman of the film, you know, how they feel about baby. It's clear that how the mother and the two sisters, when they talk about baby's father and they basically make him sound like, oh, he was nothing but a joke. He was weak. He was this, he was that. And how he just suddenly disappeared. So basically they all had to raise baby being the only male in the house. So there's all this resentment towards men and they really just kept, yeah, they abused him. I mean, um, the fact that they used a cattle prod against him could possibly be a reason why 
could be an answer actually to the fundamental question of is he really this infantile or was he forced to be this infantile when they're shocking him they say baby doesn't walk baby doesn't talk so they're using negative reinforcement to keep him infantilized but if they're already using a cattle prod against him they're already probably beating the shit out of him in other ways and why do they keep him that small because that's their source of income they're on welfare that's how they view him but and how they treated him but when you look at Ann Gentry you know she loves him she wants to nurture him so to say that she was just like him no she tried getting him to play with the ball and to throw it back to her or to roll it back to her to get him to stand up for that picture that she takes with him in the suit so to say that they could be just as bad I don't think so I think Gentry genuinely wanted to be with baby and to get him out of that bad place because all the other um, social workers that were assigned to their case either quit or just suddenly disappeared. So she knew something was wrong. She doesn't want him to grow up though. She wants to keep him that way. But can we definitely say that for sure? Yeah. Can we say that for sure? I mean, well, well, you boys, you know, all women are bad. I know how it is. Well, uh, <laughs> I, this, just kidding. Th- when when I when I watched this, I had a reaction to this as almost the mirror opposite of my very first episode of being on the show. And what I mean by that is, the first film that I did with you, Mike, was Blood Sucking Freaks, and I say that Blood Sucking Freaks is a pro feminist statement, and specifically based on the ending. If you want to go listen to it, go listen to it. But with this one, I actually see this movie as attacking modern feminism and the women's movement in the 70s because there are two different things one women are the leads throughout the film the only man that we see is him except for those who are at the party scene and the guy who is working with the social worker and there's a line in here where one of the guys who's at the party says something about oh what are you one of those feminists or something like that he's got some he's got yeah, he's got some of these women, you know, one of these one of these women's livers or something. So, what we get really, I think, is a film that is filtered through women's lib of the '70s and a deep fear by men that if women take over, that they will keep us infantilized for their own needs. Or because that is the way that they can relate to men on a very um, easy level because of that whole idea of being nurturing, uh, motherly types, maybe the idea of trading out a human for a doll but not growing up. So the idea of infantilizing men and the fear of that, of that emasculation. And that's what I saw in this film. And that ending to me, like this is an existentialist horror film. I mean, to me, I mean, I, I watched it and I go, this is the, the, this is like the fear of (laughs) of men going, Oh, they're going to take it away from me. (laughs) Oh, that's so adorable. That is so cute. See, I'm playing up to the whole, never mind. Wow. Damn. You guys suck. Uh, no, it, I, I can. I totally see where you're getting at, because with the 1970s, clearly before my time, no, no tea, no shade. Not every feminist, even then, was Gloria Steinem or, in extreme cases, Valerie Solanas. I guess maybe because I grew up with the third wave of feminism, 
I don't see it that way. But I really like from I really do enjoy where you're coming from on that, where it is a deep rooted, you know, it, it definitely um, can be remarked or compared to what the MRA of today feels about feminism, that we're all just angry, man hating dykes. And uh, we're all looking to take over the world by putting men in strollers and diapers. And, uh, well, that actually sounds like fun. I can make good money off of that. I personally just saw Miss Gentry wanting to take Baby out of a very bad situation and bring her home where he can feel just a little bit more comfortable. And yes, let's talk about the ending where we do find out what happened to Mr. Gentry, where there was some sort of accident that left him cerebrally damaged. And you see him kind of very childlike and infantile-like. And so when she opens the door and says, where's my favorite, you know, where's my hard worker, my good worker, that's where everyone has that, oh, holy shit moment, that what the fuck moment when you see her husband with a bandage around his head acting very, (laughs) very infantile and that he and baby start playing together. And she's like, Oh, you two are my favorite boys. And she's playing with him in the pool. And that's where it ends. And that it gives you that creepy vibe, but we don't, we can't honestly say she wanted to keep them both infants, but it's a good speculation. It gives you that. What if moment? I get the feeling that, Maybe her husband can't because, as we said, like physically he's damaged now. We don't know exactly what happened. It was a car accident. Well, he physically- got shot in the head. But, I mean, he's damaged in some way. Like he's not going to be the 30-year-old man or whatever he is. Mm-hmm. But as for Baby, she could do something. And she does at one point try to get him to act older. But then just kind of gives up on it. We, I, I think we get the idea that she goes, well, maybe I can use this because I have this other situation and those two can work together. And to me, I sort of see that as as evil as the mother and the sisters because although he's been abused and is challenged, we would are led to believe that he has all these faculties. He has all these abilities. It's just a matter of someone working with him to bring him up to speed. And instead of doing so, she goes, I'm just going to use this to my own advantage. So the question for me becomes, who's more evil? One who can help and doesn't? Or those who harm? I have to say, if I put them on the scale, they're both pretty much equaled out as pretty bad. It's assumed that the Wentzworth women have killed before in order to keep baby. And Gentry and her mother-in-law definitely go to that length to kill the the Wadsworth family to steal baby away basically but yeah there's that moment for me the very telling moment where baby it tries to breastfeed with the babysitter and to me that's a very very sexual moment and it kind of proves that he is aware of what is going on and it has these feelings and isn't a hundred percent infant, but that again is quickly driven out of him with, with a fucking cattle prod. <laughs> baby doesn't walk, baby doesn't talk, baby doesn't fuck. I was expecting that part, but no, again, very good points that I should definitely watch this film again, most likely will and try to see it from I will want to see it from that angle that both sets were just not in the, clearly it was for their own personal gain. 
that's all it basically boils down to is personal gain. For the Wadsworth, it was financial, so they wouldn't have to really work. And for Gentry, it was just so maybe, well, if I can't have the kind of relationship with my husband anymore, he needs someone to keep him entertained. So I'm going to throw this this other man-child at him. And sometimes I wonder if it was for the money or if it was more for the control. I mean, Mrs. Wadsworth has had three children by three different men, two of which are female and one is a male. And it feels like to me, and I think they might even say something similar in the film, that they're keeping baby infantilized almost as revenge against all men is kind of what it feels like to me. That's exactly what was talked about between Gentry and another gentleman of authority in the movie, but you didn't even have to hear that to understand that Baby's father was the one that she married, but he's still up and left, and they don't have any idea of what what had happened and at the at baby's birthday party how she's talking about how it's so totally natural knowing that children will eventually grow up and leave the nest but she has this very good this feeling in her heart knowing that baby will never desert her it's because she never gave him the chance to a grown man has the ability to make up his mind and to do what he wants to do infants depend on the parents and for learning, for moving, for everything else. And she deliberately kept the that growth away from him. So it's very twisted. She loves him. You've, you've know, you see moments where she does love her son, but at the same time she resents him because it's the only male in her life and she just wants to abuse him because the others aren't around to abuse So even the sisters are taught to treat men that way when you see the younger sister Alba with her one boyfriend at the birthday party where he's trying to get into her pants, but she's teasing and taunting him saying, well, maybe let's see how strong your appetite is. I want you to burn your finger, see how long you can burn your finger with this flame. And he only lasted a couple of seconds. So he got nowhere. He was kicked out of the house. So the girls even grow up to treat men like things to control and like i said when you include those lines about women's lib and all of that other stuff it becomes this film that plays i think to fear of women ascension in that era in the early to mid 70s and it is um like I said, when I watched it, I go, I feel this like it's it's an existentialist horror film with like anti-woman statements. It really is like, what is it telling us? It's saying if women take over as they do in this, you know, little story, they're going to treat us like children and if it, make, it will not be good. It, well, and, if it makes you feel any better, I won't treat you like a baby because I'm entirely too shit shy when it comes to diapers. I think I'll just keep you in the first grade because you can still feed yourself and wipe yourself and bathe yourself. So if that makes you feel any better, you know, it, 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 it's not my fear. I'm just talking about <laughs> like, like, where did this come from? That that's the thing that I'm thinking about. Of like, where did this like, where did this story come from? Like, where did these ideas come from? Who wrote this thing, and what were they thinking? And that's the only thing I can think of. This film, I think, represents this you know, in some way, this fear that maybe was going around at the time, at least whoever wrote this thing. I don't know if they realized it when they made it, but it could, that's it how it plays to me. 
it, it could possibly be the fear of the female uprising or it could just because uh, the, this film was made in the 70s, so therefore the writers may have been born in the 40s and the 50s where women were, let's let's be real here, a majority of women were stay-at-home mothers. All they did were cook, clean, give birth, and lift their uh, nightgown up once in a while when he wants a little. So um, the idea of women doing anything more than that was just so mind-boggling. So, or it could also have been an anti-feminist fear of this is how women are going to eventually turn us into these slaves, where, of course, that was a misconstrued notion of feminism. And unfortunately, it's still misconstrued today, you know, thanks to the MRA. I think the reason why we have the MRA is because of this film. I'm going to blame the baby for, uh, for the plight of today. Thanks a lot, baby. The writer of this film was Abe Polsky. Um, he and his brother uh, were producers. I think that um, they produced this film together, at least. And uh, Abe had written... He's primarily a playwright, but he has written quite a few films. He wrote a little bit for television, things like Bonanza, The Virginian, and Kung Fu and Fame. But primarily, there were four films that he wrote in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, the Gay Deceivers, Rebel Rousers, which is a pretty good biker film, one called Brute Core, and then The Baby. And The Baby, he actually wrote, I want to say, in 68, and it was sold to movie company and then he had to buy it back a few years later when he figured that they weren't going to make this film so this was kind of his pet project that he and his brother produced and had uh, ted post direct so yeah I, I see him you know talking about his age he's born in 35 so he's what uh 33 when he writes the baby so I think he was wise to what was going on with this and writing it in 68. That is kind of the time of liberation for a lot of different groups. I mean, it is, uh, you know, post Selma, all this kind of stuff. And I don't know if they're necessarily burning their bras at this particular time, but we're definitely going to be getting into a much, uh, you know, more, uh, a better era of feminism as we're going along here. So I don't see him, not seeing what's going on here. And it's that kind of like, um, is it like Thomas Swift kind of thing where you just take the stuff and put it to absolute extremes in order to show, you know, kind of the, um, the, the lunacy of the situation kind of thing. I totally see him just taking this and running with it. And I don't see him critiquing feminism. I see him more critiquing the people who would critique feminism. At least that's my interpretation of it. So you see it as more of a Jonathan Swift type satire. Yeah. That's for me anyway, you know, you take something and you just blow it up as big as you can go. And for me, this whole idea of, you know, treating men like infants and these very strong women characters. And, you know, it just seems like, he was in on the joke. I like that idea as well, where the central theme of feminism is, it will at least my central theme of feminism is equality, that we strive for equality in every sense of the form. But then therefore it can be, it, this whole thing is a lampoon. 
of what feminism is. Now, granted, like I said earlier, we do have feminazis out there that strongly believe that even consensual sex is rape no matter what. Only if you're doing it right. <laughs> oh, God. Way to derail my thought, you asshole. No, it's – um. <laughs> Like he said, it was purely a lampoon of if you were to ask a a cisgendered male, what is feminism to you? And they just describe it and they just make it a big old joke. This film could have easily been called National Lampoon's The Baby. And so maybe not really attacking feminism itself, but attacking anti-feminists. Or feminism deniers, those who say, I don't need feminism because da 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 da. Maybe the film could just be poking fun at them, at their point of view of what feminism is. Whereas I want equality with my primary, who happens to be a cisgendered male, that um, somebody from the MRA could look at that and say, oh no, this is what you really want, which is me just being this glamazon with a flogger just beating the shit out of him. Again, I get paid for that, but. I've also wanted to kind of take those ideas that some of these, you know, MRA type guys are putting out there and take them to the extreme and do kind of like, you know, Rush Limbaugh 50 years in the future where, you know, it's only gay marriage is allowed and they basically abort fetuses in order to eat them. You know, it's just like the most extreme kind of things because if you take the logic, quote-unquote, of some of these arguments to their extreme ends, it's just like, really? You think this is what we want? Not quite. I don't know. I'm suddenly hungry since you mentioned, you know, abortion, but anyway. Baby back ribs? (laughs) Indeed. I want my baby back jelly, baby back ribs. I want my baby jelly, baby back ribs. I got my baby back ribs. The thing with the baby for me, and I only watched it once, so I didn't live with it as long as as I had with other films uh, that we've reviewed. So for me, it was it was much more serious than it was. I, I'm used to satires being a little more cartoony around the edges. And to me, I took this as like a very serious family drama as I was watching it. So that's why I found it more of an existentialist horror film in the end. And like I said, these things that were making points about the feminist movement, which the when I watched it, I go, this guy who wrote this thing really hates the feminist movement. Like, like to me, it was him trying to like bring it down in some way. The one that I can consider that would be uh, similar to the what you were just talking about there, Mike, the idea that, um, you know, it's uh, sapiens to be homo and, you know, we can't have any more children and all of that stuff and that homosexuality is considered the norm and is promoted by the government is Anthony Burgess's The Wanting Seed, which is uh, a great satire that he wrote uh, after Clockwork Orange. But as for this film, and it's not as good in terms of this role reversal idea and it, it is a satire. I mean, it does make good points, but it, it kind of falls apart. And I only saw it once in the theater was uh, White Man's Burden from, I think, 95 yes. with Harry Belafonte and um, John Travolta. 
And in that, it's it's a reversal that the blacks are the majority and the whites are the minority. And there's all of this reversal in terms of uh, we, we get to understand sort of white privilege and sort of the, the, the place of, of, of blacks in our society based on sort of how Travolta's character is treated by Harry Belafonte, who's this rich um, black man. And so so that kind of thing – I, I I saw, but it's not as deliberate in here where we don't, at least in this little, you know, house and universe that they've created, the women are in charge, but we don't get the feeling that it's everywhere in in that estimation, at least in terms of the world that's created under the baby. Well, there are two other films that this reminded me of, and then also Bad Boy Bubby in a way. They were both based on actual cases. And the first one that came to mind when I watched Bad Boy Bubby was the enigma of Casper Hauser from 1974, uh, Werner Herzog's film starring the great Bruno S. Uh, if you don't know Bruno S, he's a, he was a schizophrenic patient who was in several of, of Herzog's films in the mid late seventies. And enigma Casper Hauser was based on the story of Casper Hauser, who is this young German boy who appeared one day in this town and he was in his early teens. And he, the theory goes that he had been, raised by whomever in like a cellar. He didn't know how to speak. He did not address himself. He had no social graces whatsoever. And he is adopted by a family and they try to teach him how to live uh, in, in that world and basically um, meets a tragic end. The, the, the story is different than the Herzog film. But Bruno S. being schizophrenic and a little out of it at times uh, in just a great performance, but out of it still at the same time, um, gives this otherworldly quality to this character, which is funny because, like I said, that Casper Hauser was a teenager, but Bruno S. is like 40. But it's it's just a fascinating film. And then another one that's similar, which was based on a French story, and this kid I think was actually raised in a cave – was Truffaut's The Wild Child from 1970, where this child's found in the wilds and he's brought back to society and, and, and tries to live that way. And then you could also find a comparable, and this is obviously a satire, with something like Dustin Hoffman in Little Big Man, where his family is going across the plains, they're attacked, and he's raised by the Indians, and then is kidnapped again and brought back into white society after being raised by the Indians and can't relate to white society. So there's all of this sort of fish out of water stories, some real, some just fictional, but uh, I saw similar sort of stories. Chickabee, where does Nell fit into this? I have no idea. I haven't watched it. (laughs) You haven't seen Nell? No. All I know from Nell is that people used to make fun of it because all she does is like make grunts and groans, isn't it? She sounds like Pootie Tang throughout (laughs) this whole movie. (laughs) So say, my same, but dang. So I'd say. It's one of the most embarrassing performances I've ever seen. Yeah. (laughs) She goes full retard. Everybody knows you never go full retard. What do you mean? Check it out. Dustin Hoffman, Ray Man, look retarded, act retarded, not retarded. Cat two picks, cheated cards, autistic, show, not retarded. They got Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump. Slow, yes, retarded, maybe, braces on his legs, but he charmed the pants off next to him and won a ping pong competition. That ain't retarded. And he was a goddamn war hero. Right. You know any retarded war heroes? 
You went full retard, man. Never go full retard. You don't buy that? Ask Sean Penn, 2001, I am saying. Remember? Went full retard. Went home empty-handed. So let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with Baby himself, Mr. David Mooney, after these important messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamNeed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Are you tired of the same old stuff Hollywood puts out week after week? You know, all those less-than-appealing remakes, those films with over-the-top CG and no storyline. Well, we don't have to take it anymore thanks to the 2015 B-Movie Celebration. Polyscope Media presents the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration. In 2015, we're going to go back in time, back to 1985 to be exact. The 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration will feature the following films from this time period. Fright Night. Malibu Express. The Last Dragon. Invasion USA. Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Return of the Living Dead. Trancers. Reanimator. Morons from Space. The Stuff. Life Force. Defcon 4. Damnation Alley. Better Off Dead. Godzilla 1985. Along with those 80s classics, we're going to showcase The Blob from 1958 and Death Race 2000 from 1975. So pack those bags, recharge that flux capacitor, and join us for the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration on August 14th, 15th, and 16th. 2015 at the Brown County Playhouse in Nashville, Indiana. For updated information on this event, bookmark the bmoviecelebration.com website using your favorite browser, and we promise to have you home back in time. Titles mentioned in this promo are subject to change without notice. The Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast is an official sponsor of the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration. Hi, my name's Chris, and uh, I've got Stephen Seagal on the old dog and bone. Stephen. Yes? Have you ever desired to hear a weekly movie podcast hosted by two fellows from the northeast of England who run their little hands through the week's movie news and then cap it off with a review or two, ranging from all sorts of genres, kung fu, anime, straight-to-video tomfoolery, bit of horror? Uh, no. 
Well, you're a dick who doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't even know why I'm asking you. I'm sure there's other people out there who have desired to hear such a thing. So if you're one of those lovely people, pop on over to wafufm.com. That's W-A-F-U-F-M.com and check out the show. You can also find us on iTunes, Talk Show and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash wafublog. Wafufm, it's a podcast that's good and stuff. <laughs> Shut up, Stephen. How did you get into acting? Well, I've, I've wanted to be an actress since I was a little boy. My uh, family had encouraged it. My mother especially. She had been a singer. And so um, she encouraged me to do that. And as I went along, I got into high school uh, theater things, you know, uh, the, the speech tournaments and, and the theater productions there. And I really loved that. Seemed to really have a pull toward that. And so I did that a lot. Uh, while I was in high school, there was a theater in uh, Dallas called Margot Jones Theater. It was the first theater in the round in the in, in the state in the in the country, and so I got cast in when I, in my senior year in high school. I got cast there in a the Browning version, and um, at that at that theater. So I started getting experience working with professionals there, which was wonderful. So it got me all excited, and then I went on to school. Uh, I went to a little uh, school, a two year school in Jacksonville, Texas, called Lon Morris College, and uh, that was a really a premier fine arts school at that time. Uh, the director there was really wonderful, and all of their credits went over to the University of Texas in Austin. So um, I went there for two years and then transferred to Austin and finished out there and then went straight to California. I was more interested in film than the theater, but mainly because I thought that's probably, if you're going to make a living, that's the only way you can do it is that way. So I went there, and I've always had been in love with movies. So I went to California in 1966 and uh, had my SAG card by 1968. I started doing commercials and uh, uh, like uh, promos for the year, the, the TV year promos for them. And uh, that's how I got started and got my SAG card. And then I started doing some segmental television. And I was in the Doris Day show and, and uh, some, a lot of things. The casting director at Universal liked me, so I got cast in things there. Uh, I think that's a little after the baby. But uh, I, I think I'd done the Doris Day show for two years. And uh, my agent called me and said, well, do you think you can play a baby? I said, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I went on the interview uh, and met Ted Post and the producers and the writers there, Abe Polsky. And uh, it, that started there, right there. And uh, they asked me to audition, and I pulled up everything I had to think about all the babies I've been around in my life. I love children. So I thought, hmm. So I pulled it out, and uh, they liked it, and so they cast me. What did you do for your audition? They said, well, we want you to be a baby down on the floor and just, you know, act like a baby. That's all they said to do. So I, I said, okay. I thought a baby is vulnerable. A baby is dependent on others. A baby is, you know, is innocent. So I just started doing that. And uh, what if you have seen the film, basically what you saw me doing, that is what I did for the audition. What was Ted Post like to work with? He was wonderful. Ted was the kind that he would set up the he would set the scene up, and then he would just let us go, and we would you know we, we understood we we had one rehearsal before we started the filming, and it was we filmed it in three weeks. We had one rehearsal, and then we just set up the scenes. And uh, the actors were very professional. Uh, Ruth Roman was wonderful, and, and Jeanette Comer, uh, very professional, had great backgrounds, and then. Susan Zenor and Mariana Hill were my sisters in that, and they were wonderful. And I don't know, we just kind of all hit it off, and Ted knew how to work with us and uh, get us in there, and he'd let us go, and man, we'd go for it. (laughs) 
And did you do anything to prepare for the role? I, yes, I did. They sent me to a, a, a place there uh, where there were retarded children, uh, younger retarded children. So I went there and spent a day or two there and watched them. And then I got around a lot of babies. And, you know, babies, uh, they're, they're just, babies are like, you know, this, this little thing that's happening, <laughs> you know, this little life, life form that's happening, and they're so dependent. And, and so I try to instill all that into my performance, all of those things, and the, the retardness that I saw there, you know, at the, uh, at the place that we went to. I can't remember the name of it. It was a county, it was a county place there. But I, I, I just try to take the mannerisms and the things that I saw there and incorporate them into, you know, into me doing them that way. It was very strange. I don't know. I just, like Ruth said, I said, Ruth, is there something you could suggest? And she said, honey, just keep going. <laughs> and I kept going. Ruth had been around for so many years and had been in so many wonderful things. Yes, she's she a must wonderful have been, actress. Uh, oh, she must have uh, had some good stories to tell. Oh, she did. And, but, you know, she really didn't do that much of that, really, uh, honestly. Um, she was very focused on, on, on that part, Mama, that part. And I called I didn't really call her Ruth. I called her Mama the whole time. And she would always refer to me as my baby, which is interesting, you know. But she was the kind of lady. She was one of the old school actresses, uh, you know, Hollywood star uh, actresses. She would kind of create a stir wherever she went, uh, not intentionally doing it. It was just part of her makeup, just part of her persona. But uh, people would always look at her and say, is that somebody? They may not recognize her, but they thought it was somebody. You know, she had that kind of magnetism. And, and uh, as you see in the film, you know, she's pretty, she's very strong. She's also could do other light things, too, like that. But uh, she really kind of focused on the things there. Uh, she and Anjanette were kind of rivals, uh, not only in the film, but I think she brought that to that, that kind of feeling to the set. Uh, not to be, uh, you know, to get in the way, to be unprofessional, but she brought that to me so that there was this tension between them all the time on the set. And so it made it, when you played the scenes, you know, you would catch up, get caught up in that tension and that kind of, you know, dynamic that was going on the two of them for what they wanted to get, <laughs> which was me. The object of everyone's affection. Oh, yes, I guess you could say that <laughs> at that time in that film. You talked about the vulnerability that you're trying to bring to the role. Yes. You must have felt pretty vulnerable in your costume. Oh, I did indeed. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, they, they took all, they, I, I was covered with nair. That's a thing that takes hair off your body. And so they took all the hair off my arms and my legs. Um, and couldn't, of course, couldn't take it off my face because I did have a beard at the time. You know, I had a full beard that I could grow. I was almost 30 years old. I think around 30 when I did this. I was very vulnerable. They, they, they built these clothes or made these clothes, the costume or made these clothes for me. Have you ever had your hair off? Have you ever shaved all the hair off your legs or anything? And the feeling of your pants on your legs, it makes you feel very kind of vulnerable and kind of exposed. And so I, I did feel that. Uh, but I also tried to in incorporate into it this feeling, this, this feeling of reacting to everything that happened there at the moment, you know, as, as it was happening. Uh, I would get myself, I didn't try to make up anything before I went, you know, started. But I would react to what was actually happening there. And Ruth gave so much and, and Jeanette gave so much. And so it was it was really kind of a wonderful thing just to be able to uh, to react to them and the way they were at, reacting to me. And I think it must have been kind of strange for them to have this grown man crawling around in diapers and little and little suits and things like that. Uh, I think one, in one scene, when Anjanette takes me to her house, she puts me in a, you know, pants. So I thought I had grown up in that. But I had the pants on, so I thought, well, I've gotten out of the shorts now. Maybe I'm growing. <laughs> when it came to all the crawling and stuff, that must have been murder on your knees. 
Uh, not really. I don't know. I don't know what. I, well, I tell you what. There was a lot of. Uh, well, I was in the crib a lot, and then in the, in the house they went. They, they went to this a lovely old part of of Los Angeles, and uh, they got these old kind of old mansions, you know, that had all this kind of gothic looking stuff, you know. So most of those places had had uh, carpet on the floor. So, you know, when I was crawling around and all those things, I was actually on carpet, so it didn't make it so bad. But I, I, I got so involved in it, to be honest with you, I didn't really pay much attention to all of that. And I felt like it's what I would be feeling anyway if I was really doing this as a child. You mentioned Abe Polsky before. Was he around the set very often? Oh, yes, he was. He was there almost every day. You know, this was originally, uh, this was a story that he got from something that actually happened in California back at that time or in the years before that. Uh, but it was a little girl. And so he turned it, a little girl that was kept like this, uh, and so he, he turned it into this, you know, turned it into a little boy or a man. Or it wasn't a little girl, it was a woman. I guess she was 18 or 19 years old. And, uh, but he turned it into, you know, this character in this, in this film script. But he was there, and uh, he was always there to change anything or to help with anything. And he and Ted would, you know, talk back and forth a lot and everything. And Ted was always there. You know, he was always there with the camera and making everything happen. So it was neat. He was really a neat man. I talked to him a couple of years ago. They, they, uh, I think they sold the film to a, a company and, and they made it, brought out a new DVD. And so they interviewed me uh, for the DVD. And I got to talk to Ted just before that. I said, I'd like to talk to him before. And so I, I called Ted and talked to him. Of course, he's up in his 90s and he was not doing well at the time. He passed away this last year. There was a real connection where he was just, he was just, he was proud of me, I think, but he was very encouraging and they had taken this around, you know, he started after, I guess, after he stopped making movies, he started doing education and call at the college level for filmmaking. And I didn't realize that they were using the baby and taking the baby and that, you know, that these colleges were looking at this film, you know, as, as something, cause I, I don't know, that just never occurred to me that they would find that interesting. <laughs> I mean, I'm shocked by the reaction to the film. Yeah, what have been some of the reactions that you've had over the years? Uh, well, mainly what I've had uh, at the time, I, the reaction was, you know, it, it was pretty good. I don't, to be honest with you, uh, it, it, Scotia International, uh, the, 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 I'm trying to think of the name of the producers, I think Feynman or anyway, I can't remember the name, but they were on the set every day too. But they had just gotten in, this was their first film, and I think they were a little anxious to sell it afterwards, you know. And so I know Anjanette was very upset with them because she said they sold them. You know, they didn't try to get a distributor that would give it more uh, distribution or it would get more more screenings. And so she was very upset about that. Uh, so I didn't, the initial uh, reaction, I really didn't know much about. I didn't read any reviews or anything or see any reviews. Uh, I thought, well, that one just kind of went and you know, came and went. And uh, then Elvira on Friday night started playing it on her show, on her television, uh, syndicated television show. That's when it started getting a following. And then they started writing about it on the Internet. And that's when I got most reactions. And I've had some absolutely wonderful reactions and wonderful things said about my performance. And then there have been other people that have been very unkind, uh, which you always get. You know, you throw it out there and you always you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, you know, but I, I talked to Ted about this and he said, David, it was not your performance. It was what you were playing and the reaction to a, a man, a grown man being put in that situation you know, uh, with the matriarch kind of effect on their life and, and being so controlled by that. 
and he said it was, it was that's what they're reacting to. I had one guy that just talked about ways, you know, goop, uh, gurgling and all that. I never gurgled in the movie, by the way. <laughs> Uh, I don't think, but the sound, all the sounds on there were made by me. Those were all looped or that they did an independent recording on it, you know, of different oh, sounds wow. that I made during the film. Because, I, you know, we actually played the scenes and did all the scenes. With, it was not, you know, and then they looped some of it and then they, they um, recorded it and then they added it later. And I thought, I think maybe in one of the transitions, you know, they cut it up a lot for television. So I think, I don't know if there was a main, you know, the whole film was whole there for a while, but I guess they found a recording of it and, and did so they could do the whole film. But I noticed on the latest editions, that, like this most recent one, uh, it sounded like they had put some stuff in there that was not me. Uh, oh, some of the noises and that? Yeah, some of the sound recordings, some of the noises uh, in places uh, were not the same as they had been in the original. And so I thought maybe they, and, and, and that's where they might have thought you're, you're gurgling or something, but I never gurgled in the, in the movie. I didn't, I wouldn't have done that. That would have been, you know, caricature-ish. Anyway, so, you know, I've had reactions walking around in, in poopy pants and all that, or poopy diapers and all that, you know. And they were mainly criticizing me as a man in that situation and not the actor giving the performance. What was the atmosphere like on set? Uh, it was, well, they were very professional. That was lovely. We had three weeks to get it done. So uh, the crew was very proud. Once they saw the, all the people they brought together and that it was actually happening because there were actually the tension and all that stuff was happening. The performances were happening. So they they were like that. There was tension between Anjanette and Ruth. But I think Ruth brought some of that and Anjanette brought some of that because they were kind of, Ruth was really older older school. And I think they used to do that on set where there would be conflict between the two characters that there was conflict with. And so she brought that. And so there was that tension all the way that way. But as far as working together and um, uh, all of that, the, there was one scene uh, where this, the, the act scene where Ruth is chasing Anjanette with the axe. <laughs> and they kind of, they, that was kind of real. They were really peeled at each other, I think, for some oh, reason. Wow. I don't know why. I mean, I was, I tried to stay innocent. I tried to stay out of all of those things. And I just reacted to what the scene, when I went into the scene, I reacted to what was there. I, I was, I tried to be very spontaneous about my reactions, you know, to, to what was given. When mama was coming up and saying, oh, she's my baby and all that. There's one scene when we're at the party and oh, that's my baby. Well, I was just eating it up. You know, I thought, this is my mommy. You know, I love her and all that. So <laughs> I was just trying to be in, as they say, in the moment today. <laughs> You were credited as David Manzi in that and, and a few of your roles. Why the switch to David Mooney? That was a family thing. Uh, my Manzi is my uh, is my uncle's name, and I was named after him. My actual name is Manzi Lamar Mooney. Uh, now, there was a funny thing why I switched it in, in the original to David Manzi, because I wanted to keep my uncle's name because my mother and father loved him, and, and you know he was very dear to them, and so I didn't want to, when I ch- changed my name, uh, and I didn't want to use Manzi as a first name, but the reason for that was I walked into a, a, a one of the um, um, agents at that time, and I'm trying to think of his name. His, his name was Bergel, I think, or something like that. Anyway, it was a pretty good uh, you know uh, agency there. And when I went in to see him, and I, he asked me my name, and I said Manzi Lamarmoni, and he started laughing, and he said it sounds like a stripper, and I <laughs> said what. I, you know, I had no, I just, it, it just, you know, <laughs> totally took me back. And so uh, that day I changed it to David Manzi. I love the name David. 
And I thought, if I have a son, I'll name him David. So I just said, I'll take the name David. And so I called myself David Manzi for uh, quite a few years. Uh, I was that way in the Doris Day show and uh, some of the other stuff. I did a lot of commercials and thing, industrial stuff and all that, too. Uh, at that time, the, that was called the bread and butter, you know, stuff to pay the rent. And uh, so I, I did a lot of those Toyotas and all commercials and head and shoulder commercials and all those kind of things. But uh, after the baby was over, I started growing up. Uh, I, you know, uh, I, I started, things started changing. And my father had passed away. And so I thought, you know, I really want my father to use my father's name. And so I, I took, uh, took back and, and just changed, took the Manzi away and just called myself David Mooney after that. But all my family still call me Manzi. What was Doris Day like to work with? Oh, she's lovely. Uh, very spontaneous, just lovely, very professional. Uh, and uh, it was, of course, I, my eyes were like this. You know, I was in love with her from when I was, you know, as a, growing up in the 50s and everything and watching all the movies that she made. And I, I just loved her, you know, and, and Pillow Talk and all those, those type of movies. And so I was kind of gaga, but, you know, I, I kept myself together. And uh, <laughs> so, but we came in and we, we hit it off in our scenes together. And uh, I didn't have, I, I didn't have a lot of scenes with her, but uh, one of the ones that we did uh, uh, was this episode called A Frog Called Harold. Uh, this frog gets into the uh, water, you know, the water evaporator up there, you know, we, everybody's drinking their water. And so we had this whole thing in the office where we're trying to do it, and the thing falls off, and we all skid around the floor. It was right out of Max Simmons. And uh, so we had a lot of fun doing that. And she was just lovely, very, very professional, and uh, did not come on the set until usually, you know, it was time that she would come on and be late. And you went, you did it, and it was usually, you know, a, a take. Uh, Rose Marie was uh, also there, too, and she was lovely, too. But it was, uh, it was Star's Day that, uh, you know, I remember really in court. Because I was in my 20s, I was about 24, 25, I guess, was 26 in that that area when I did that, and uh, I was Dave the Office Boy. <laughs> what have been some of your favorite roles to play over the years? Well, the baby, of course, stands out, uh, and I did mainly a role, small roles on on uh, on segmental television. Um, I did a role uh, on Barnaby Jones that I really liked doing. Uh, I was kind of a victim on that, but it was. Uh, he was this young man that was taking advantage of that they were trying to get to uh, to do some kind of, of stuff that was, was illegal or something. I can't remember the whole thing. It's been some time ago. But uh, I enjoyed that one. Uh, and, uh, oh, and a chaplain. I love to do chaplain. It was only a small part, but I loved it because uh, I got to work with Robert Downey Jr. and Marissa Tomei and Dan Aykroyd. And uh, it was in the Max Sennett segment of the movie when he just becomes Charlie. You know, he does his hat and twirls his hat around, and then he comes in and takes over right. the Max Senate players, and he goes in there, and he trips me with a – they chase us around and chase us around. He, he, he trips me with his uh, umbrella, and I fall. I think the reason I got the role was because I could do a Pratt fall really well. <laughs> and I did quite a few of them. I think we did, we did 40 before the thing was done. <laughs> <laughs> I was black and blue the next day. <laughs> oh, I bet. Do you still do uh, your, your work on the stage? Um, I don't hear. I, I'm a retired teacher. I taught for 27 years. Um, when I uh, when I started growing uh, growing up or older, um, I started getting fewer roles, and Hollywood started changing, and it was getting you know very difficult to get in for things. And uh, I, I did do some work at Universal. I did Man with the Power, and uh, what was the other Six Million Dollar Man, which I really had fun. I, I got to chase the uh, flying saucer in that one. Uh, and, uh, 
But things were, I, I thought, well, you know, I, I guess maybe I'm going to be a character actor. So I started, I was, I had gotten my teaching certification at the University of Texas. So I started uh, teaching in the Los Angeles Unified School District because it allowed me to get off for interviews when I needed to, you know. So uh, I started doing that. And then I was in the L.A. riots. Uh, and I was working in a school at, that had inner school kids in it. And uh, so they were involved in the L.A. riots. And after all that was over and we had martial law and all that, I thought, hmm, I don't know that I want to grow old in this city. <laughs> and mm. so uh, I decided that I would come back to Texas. And um, I came back to San Antonio and started teaching here. And I taught for, I've taught 27 years altogether. I think it was 20, uh, uh, 17 here and 10 in, in Los Angeles. Then I retired two years ago. And uh, so I substitute teach. And then I do uh, commercials here, local commercials. And uh, an occasional film role comes by, and I get to do that. You know, just mainly local things here. I'm very involved in the, in the church that I go to, and uh, so I just I just kind of enjoy the days now. You know, enjoying each day for what it is. What are you teaching? Um, I was teaching uh, theater arts, uh, and then I was a speech and debate coach at a, a school here close to Randolph Air Force Base called Judson High School. I did that, and then uh, they. I was teaching up in New Braunfels at a school there, and I was the drama and speech teacher there. And then uh, they asked me to come down because of my film experience and start a film program at Judson High School, which I did in uh, 1997. And I came there, and we started that, and we got that going. And we got quite a program going there for filmmaking and media technology. I did that for for several years, and then uh, and became the speech and debate coach there when they had a change in, in the high schools. But I enjoyed it. I love working with kids now. I love kids and uh, high schoolers. I'm really, I really, I just have a thing with high schoolers and working with them. So it, it's it's been great. Like yesterday, I was uh, subbing for the theater arts teacher over at a wonderful school here called Johnson High School, and they have a wonderful theater arts program. And they were working on their interscholastic league one act play, and so uh, I was able there to work with kids and to use all that stuff that I learned and came up with, you know. And uh, so I was able to, to help them along and do that, and that's really very rewarding to me. And to see, you know, you, you, they, when they hear you and they really listen to you, I said, you know, acting is not acting, it's reacting. <laughs> you know, you can't get up there, you cannot do all your, your Shakespeare stuff and give all these. I said, you have to be real. You have to give the impression of being real. And uh, I said, but that you only do that by listening to what the other characters talk said to you. <laughs> and I said, you can't right. just plan it yourself. And this is the way I'm going to say it because then it doesn't make any sense of the same. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but uh, I get to do a lot of that. And I work with kids a lot. So I really, I really enjoy that. And we're toddling along on this special episode, looking at a trio of films about men being babies. 
We've talked about two men who are kept against their will in a infantile state. Now let's discuss a different spin on the story. La Vida Lactira, which uh, I believe translates into the Milky Life. Although in some places they want to call it the Milky Way, but I'll tell you why it's not. This 1992 film from director Juan Elstrich Jr. has Mickey Rooney, not to be confused with Andy Rooney. Have you ever wondered? As Barry Riley, a rich man surrounded by a spoiled family. And um, he sees his great-grandson's life, and Riley decides it's uh, time to give up those responsibilities and live life as a baby. Because, um, you know, he's worked hard. He deserves it. So he hires himself a wet nurse, Aloha, played by, how do you say the name, sir? Marianne Sagebrecht, I believe. There you go. And uh, Hilarity ensues. Now, one of the most hilarious things about watching The Milky Life is, uh, I believe it was done in English, and then it was dubbed into Spanish, and then there are subtitles. Yeah, it's uh, coming to us from quite a ways away. <laughs> Which, And not only is it subtitled in English, but the English subtitles are over what looks like maybe French subtitles in the background. So you have this big black bar going over the former subtitles, which every once in a while you can see kind of peeking out around the edges. And to me, the the movie kind of feels like a movie of the week. It has this kind of movie of the week kind of uh, production quality for some reason. And um, I have to say it is probably one of the oddest films I have ever seen Mickey Rooney in. I'm mortified. Wow. I The fact Mickey Rooney, hairless, in a diaper. I'm that's all I can say. Because the adult babies I know or I have seen are, you know, these big fat, sweaty, hairy men who want to be treated like babies, but you know, you see Mickey Rooney going the full Monty and um yeah, Mickey Rooney in a diaper. I I have to get that image out of my head after this. Like for real. It's also like B boy stylish too, because he was wearing like at certain points a backward baseball cap. He was like a thousand years old and he's acting, you know, like the infant. I don't know too many infants that played in ball pits or have sex with their wet nurses, but I I can see where he was going in this film. Definitely. We go from the forced infantilism to the, the fetish area of what it means to age regress and where he sees his great grandson's life where everyone just finally you know everyone just caters to your needs you you make a sound and what's the first thing that happens they don't say gee what's going on they run to you oh do you need a bottle oh let me change your diaper maybe you're wet or maybe you had a bad dream or maybe you just want to play when you're an adult no one gives a shit so i think it's very interesting that he decided well I'm done taking care of my irresponsible, unemployed, greedy-ass family. Now it's your turn to take care of me. So I'm going to cut you all off financially. You're going to cater to my needs for once. So I thought that was a good film. Scary, but good. The other thing that's in here that's rather poignant, and I don't believe it's played up as high as it should be, because I think there really would be a great opportunity in there between the – the Mickey Rooney character and the wet nurse character is when he first meets her, she talks about how she just lost her child. And there seems to be this aspect of he's wants to 
get into this this mindset, as you explained, and that in some way it fills her need because she wanted a kid and she was going to have this kid and um, the kid died. So I, I see in some way that it's sort of this mutual mutual deception. <laughs> well, sort of this like 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 we both know that we're not. It's kind of hard to explain. Where it's like we both know that. Under normal circumstances, this wouldn't be the case, but we can both get our needs met in some way. That's exactly what age play is. You have um, one thing you don't hear about so often. I mean, you hear about the adults who want to indulge in their fantasies of going back to where life was so much simpler and all you had to worry about is crayons and drawing. Well, there are adults out there that actually fetishize being a parent. They're able to step into those roles, but able to step out of those roles. And that's exactly what the age play is. And it is very... um, bizarre in a sense if you're coming from a mainstream vanilla world it is a little bizarre but for them i think it's uh, i don't know if i should go as far as to say it's healthy but it's definitely beneficial for the both she's grieving over the loss of a child and he's grieving over the loss of perhaps where someone was taking care of him and loved and nourished him because he's not getting that from his family it being in spanish spanish director several people in the cast and especially when I saw that Juan Luis Buñuel is in here, which is Luis Buñuel's son, uh, who plays at the end. What happens is the Mickey Rooney character is attacked by these people that come in and they want to steal his stuff and become sort of opportunistic. And it becomes sort of this Benjamin Button story of regression where um, people are like, no, he's not acting like a baby. He actually is a baby now. And the guy who plays the doctor in that scene is is Juan Luis Buñuel, who was also a director in his own right and worked with his father before his death. And there's certain elements in here when I was watching it, I thought to myself, I go, this is interesting because Buñuel's fetish was not obviously infantilism. It was foot fetish. And you see, if you want to see Buñuel take foot fetish quite a bit in legs – uh, you just need to see things like Diary of a Chambermaid and Tristiana, and you'll understand where Bunuel's foot fetish comes from. But the thing that's funny is in some of the online writing, they give this one of Bunuel's titles, which is the Milky Way. And the Milky Way couldn't be further from the Milky Life in terms of its plot. It, mm-hmm. it, they're two completely different films. As I was explaining to you by Facebook, you were like, yeah, they keep calling it the Milky Way. And I go, I go, basically, the Milky Way is Kevin Smith kind of used, and, and I don't know if he's ever said this or not, he kind of used the structure of the Milky Way for dogma. And what it is, it came out in 68, and it's about two guys who are on a pilgrimage from France to Saragossa, Spain, to go to the shrine. And as they travel by foot, they meet all of these different people um, who are debating Catholicism in various aspects of Catholic doctrine. And it gets very much into, like, what is heresy? Um, There's a scene where uh, they meet Jesus, and he's considering shaving his beard, and his you know, Mary's there. And so it's kind of all over time-wise. It goes, you know, 2,000 years back to the current day in the late 60s. And there's two guys who are having a duel, but they're debating the finer points of heresy. So if you know Catholic doctrine, 
the Milky Way is actually quite interesting. Um, if you don't know Catholicism or Christianity all that well, it's probably not that interesting for you to watch. It's it's one of the um, I would say people often rank it as one of the lower ones during what I consider the the last great period of his films, which was from uh, 67, 66 with Belle de Jour to the end. So um, it's it's one of the ones that gets kind of overlooked, but I think it's uh, it's quite interesting. But like I said, they I, I was looking it up online this movie, and they wanted to call it the Milky Way, and I go, it's not the Milky Way, even though uh, <laughs> Bun, even though Bunuel's son is in it, you know. So I think part of the confusion is that if you go out and you Google La Vida Lactea, you see pictures of the Milky Way galaxy. I want to say that in Spanish that they might refer to the galaxy as. Vida Lactea, which is, you know, the milk of life, basically. But, you know, it doesn't translate 100%. You know, if you do a direct English translation, Vida being life rather than way kind of thing. But, you know, and then there's, it's so similar to Via Lactea. So I can see where the confusion comes in, and especially having a Bunuel in it is just, yeah, it's too much for people, but this is totally a separate film, very, very different, and I first read about this one way back in an old issue of Shock Cinema Magazine, which is still going strong, and I highly recommend if people haven't read Shock Cinema ever or lately, go out and pick up a copy, because this is still one of the few independent film magazines that's out there, and they do amazing work digging up just obscure crazy titles like this and steve pachowski who runs the magazine he does a a great great job we've talked to mike sullivan about the magazine before he writes for it fairly regularly as well and when it even comes to steve's review of the film you know he's bringing up all these other relatively insane uh, Mickey Rooney films that he had done over his career, things like The Manipulator or Everything's Ducky. Um, one of these days, maybe we'll cover Skidoo, which is finally available on DVD. But yeah, just nutty, nutty stuff. And fucking Mickey Rooney, man, 70-some years old. The the guy, he still has movies that are coming out. There's at least one more that's going to come out this year. He just passed away last year, I think it was. So he still has movies in the can kind of thing motherfucker was over 90 years old when he passed away he's 70 something when he's doing this this role and i don't know if it's brave or foolish or what it is but my god it is fascinating it's just i was absolutely captivated by this film and i don't know if it was just that my jaw was gaped the whole time going i can't believe i'm actually seeing this yeah. but it there it was man all for all the world to see and what the other thing that made me super happy was that william hootkins was in this that and everybody pretty much everybody in the world has seen william hootkins because he's been in star wars raiders of the lost ark and batman and if you haven't seen one of those films i don't know what to tell you probably been living in a cave somewhere I think I've seen William Hookins in another obscure movie called American Gothic that had He was in that. Yes, yes, he played the one son and I think that would have been 
Ah, damn it. The more I think about it now, the more I realize that could have also been a part of this. We could have made it a quadrilogy where we talk about because it's a, it's similar in the sense that you had three children in that film that were kind of regressed to acting like small kids when they were clearly in their 50s. But in any case, that's I when I was watching this and I'm looking at the character Julian and I'm thinking to myself, he looks so damn familiar. So I looked it up and I'm like, I knew it. It's Teddy from American Gothic. So, yeah, he's that fat bastard is in everything. Hitler's a nut on the subject. It's crazy. He's obsessed with the occult. I wonder if we should do that and the shelf life one of these days together because shelf life, which we talked about with Olin Jones a few weeks ago on the Miracle Mile episode, that is a group of people who were in a bomb shelter for all these years and they went in as kids and basically have remained kids in a lot of ways. So I'm curious if those two would be uh, complementary to one another. I say we give it a shot. Why not? Anything to do American Gothic, because that is another one of my what-the-fuck films. Another connection, though, like I was talking about, you know, Bunwell's foot fetish, is this sort of um, comedy at the expense of the upper class. And in here, it, it, it to me, it feels like a, um, a combination of Bunwell for this, but also, I would say, more Paul Bartel, and especially something like... Uh, scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills where you have these people who are behaving badly, who are rich and they are trying to keep up appearances, but at the same time, they're just greedy and they don't care. And that's one of the things that I get from the family or they're trying to constantly get attention by doing things that are ooh risky. For example, there's the daughter in here who, when we first meet her, she's dating a black man. And then she, I think, is with an Indian and all of this stuff. So there's this whole thing about her trying to get attention by like dating the wrong people and upsetting her family. So there's, which we don't get that maybe, you know, she actually loves these people. They're just pawns. They're just used so that she can piss off people. And that's really all it's about. It's not about a personal aesthetic. It's just about upsetting, you know, the expectations and the norms. Well, definitely, especially when in the beginning, her son's name is Ringo, which I had to kind of giggle to myself for whatever reason. I'm a very bizarre person. But when the mother was like, well, where's Ringo? And she's like, well, I don't know. I think he's with the babysitter. And so that's the great grandson that Mickey Rooney's character, Barry, has a connection with. His daughter is, or granddaughter, is neglecting her infant son. And he's like, we're very similar not just by the way we look, but just to the fact how people treat us and how they're treating all the things around them. So he's used as this everlasting piggy bank, and the kid is probably used as a trophy, where the mother doesn't even have the slightest idea where he is. Yeah, he really just sticks it to the family by doing what he wants to do, which I so admire. You know, there there is this oddness that the movie kind of portrays like it isn't it weird that this guy is becoming this baby and all this and he's acting like a baby for the first part and then after he gets a blow to the head then he basically becomes a baby but in the first part of it is very much like isn't this a strange thing for this guy to do but it is such an ultimate f you to his family because it is just i have 
built this fortune and I will use this fortune as I see fit and I am done supporting you leeches, which to me is so admirable. Indeed. But of course, infantilism or age regression is not not necessarily used as revenge, but it's definitely for people. I mean, look at those who might delve into age regression and they're the ones who are the high-powered attorneys, the judges, the doctors are so sick and tired of being in charge and making all the decisions and that's what adults do. Again, babies don't do anything except make sure the crib doesn't escape when they're sleeping in it. So I th- it's the ultimate fuck you to the family, but also he just totally needed the break and he wanted to do it in a sense that would make his family feel so godly uncomfortable. Shaving every inch of your body hair, prancing around in a diaper, and then eventually having sex with your wet nurse. Yeah, that could give me the heebie-jeebies once in a while. Not trying to yuck someone's yum, but let's be honest here. It's still a good time all around, just mortifying Mickey Rooney in a diaper. There's also a reference in the film to a classical art piece that most people know. There's the Botticelli reference to the Venus on the Half Shell at one point. But what's interesting is he's having those visions of Aloha as Venus's Botticelli when he is at that state after he's had the blows to the head, which kind of gave me the idea that if she didn't leave, he might start remembering exactly who or what he was and um, he would then advance back to adulthood because he's having those visions that you know like I remember who this woman is not exactly but I have a feeling I know who she is so I kind of think that there could have been some sort of for lack of better terms a rehabilitation for Barry at the end but um Apparently not, (laughs) with how the movie ends. Well, that ending, I didn't have a problem with the ending. The thing that I had the problem with, because it seems like a tack-on that somebody wanted to throw on the film in order to sort of go, hey, you know that last hour and a half of what you were watching? (laughs) Don't worry about that. Just uh, focus on this little moral we're going to give you as we run the end credits. And it's this voiceover that talks about, yeah, you're going to get old, but you you need to keep your youth and your vitality and your old age. And I'm like, what the fuck does that have to do with anything we just saw over the last 90 minutes? We saw Mickey Rooney in a diaper drown. So, yeah, forever young. Why didn't they just play the Rod Stewart song in that moment then? Jesus, if that's what they really wanted to say. For him being an infant, it wasn't so much of youth per per se. It was more along of lack of responsibilities and just feeling being loved. And it kind of gives them the impression that, well, when you're old, you're not loved anymore. So, which throwing a which, diaper? What the hell? Which goes back to a couple of weeks ago when we did uh, Requiem for a Dream, where there's the whole monologue that Ellen Burstyn's character gives about being old and no one cares and there's no one around and yeah. and just all of that and and just how we treat older people. We kind of you know they're there, but we don't really engage with them. We don't see them as um, people of agency. We don't see usually old people as sexual beings. Um, I, I, there was a piece that I read recently about a 80 year old who is, um, who does porn and people were like, Oh, isn't that weird? And that's sick and all that stuff. And I'm just sort of like, why, 
Why is it sick when you're 80, but if you're 18, it's okay? And just like how we treat older people. So so there is a certain element of that that I think plays in the background of this where I, I think that maybe it's about you should pay more attention to the older people because uh, they're still vital, even though they might not be uh, as sharp and getting around as easy as they used to. Well, the movie takes that weird turn after it gets hit on the head where now he's able to understand what his grandson is saying and they are able to communicate in baby language. But then there's that whole thing you mentioned Benjamin Button before where it's like he is starting to regress in age and now he's growing a tooth and it feels like it almost feels like if this movie had carried on in a more, and I hate to use the word logical, but without that ending, without the drowning thing, that he would have been almost born again, that this would have been his next stage in his life, which would have, uh, I think, driven William Hookins absolutely crazy because he's waiting for the old man to die so that he can get his inheritance and everything. So I almost would have liked the movie to have continued down that path to see him becoming this younger man and just driving his family absolutely nuts. Like, how dare you have this whole other stage to your life? Which, again, kind of speaks to me to this whole idea of how dare old people even breathe the same air that we breathe sometimes. It's like, you've reached your time old man you need to just shove on and just you know quit being a bother to us younger people we have our own things to worry about and you just need to stop existing and that's to me what hootkins and the rest of the group are just like we don't want to deal with any of this stuff you just are here to provide us with our inheritance carousel all right we're going to take another break and play back a set of interviews with a few adult babies who have agreed to talk to us for the show what would you like me to refer to you as when we are saying, and now an interview with? Chris is fine. The title for the little side of things would be more adult baby than anything. Associate closer to that uh, level within the community. My name is John Michael. Uh, most, people are, most people know me as Todd. I'm an AB. I'm an adult baby. I'm Skippy. I'm an AB. I uh, am kind of an old one. I'm like 50 years old. Been doing this thing for a long time, and and I've gotten a lot of joy out of it. You've mentioned the terms little and adult baby, and of course the community, that kind of stuff. What do you see? Is there a distinction between little and adult baby, or what is that? There are so many different terminologies and and things out there. It's even to people in the community. uh, You know, if you go to certain you know, message boards and certain groups and you'll see something. It's just like, what on earth does that mean? Come to find out it's the same thing, uh, especially for the, the actual word, you know, like even diaper. Um, there's probably a half a dozen different words that are associated with the word diaper that are not even that word. In their kink world or in their mindset, somebody who is younger than they currently are, um, the adult baby side would be closer to people that, uh, in my opinion, would associate with uh, littles that are, you know, six and under. Um, usually the little side of things, when you say little, you can be a little and then you can be an adult baby, an adult baby which is also a little. But a little can be anybody younger than you are. There's teenage littles. There's people that like to have more, you know, be taken care of more that or have the 
the attraction to the paraphernalia of that of a baby, and that would be where your bridge would be, um, to my understanding. Like I said, I only stand on one side of that field, but that would be how I see the, the community. I have uh, I have little friends in the community that prefer to be around the age of five or six. So they'll still, like, their paraphernalia and what gets them into what a lot of people in the BDSM community call a headspace or into that mindset is they like to be independent, but they like overall, they like the color, they like to use a sippy cup, but they won't use a bottle because a bottle would be for babies. When did you first kind of get exposed to this, and when did you say, this is what I enjoy, this is what I want to do? Five. I mean, the serious people, uh, they'll know about it in childhood. There are folks who, you know, like pretend that they're getting interested or whatever, you know, like in their 20s or something like that. But us serious guys, like, you know, we're warped from the beginning, so um, that's how it is. I can remember an attraction uh, towards baby paraphernalia, diapers, pacifiers, just the overall how people treat a child and enjoying that myself. Um, as little as uh, four or five, and uh, I was a late potty trained person, and I missed that attraction that, that my caregivers gave me once I was potty trained. Not saying that I was late development because I liked being treated like that, but after it was gone, there was a void in my life. And it's odd because you don't notice that as a five or six year old child, you just know that you are attracted to like diapers and pacifiers and you want to hang on to those things because they make you feel good. I, I have worn diapers off and on uh, from about the age of five until about the age of 16. And at 16, I pretty much started wearing 24 seven again through choice mainly. And, you know, I've, been wearing diapers since then 24 7 with very little exception so that's been over 12 or 13 years now i was an internet kid i was very fortunate that when i moved to florida i had a uh, a better upgrading so i had the internet in 1990 and i would research um adult babies teen babies um, because those are the only words that I could associate it with uh, those i didn't even know that was the actual term for a community and there was very little out there, but uh, as the communities progressed and I got older, I found out that you know there was more out there. But as a teenager, I, I thought I was uh, I thought I was defective. I thought there was something wrong with me. I, I put an ad in the Village Voice um, in 1980, and I got like 12 responses. Eleven of them were totally insane, um, but one guy was not, and. Uh, and he flew from California to come and meet me in New York and uh, and introduced me to a thing that at that point was called DPF, uh, Diaper Pale Fraternity, uh, became later Diaper Pale Friends. And it's, 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 uh, it's, it's long gone now, but, um, but that was a, an amazing organization. But, you know, we were like, you know, you, you get like a... You get like a Xerox newsletter in the mail once a month, and 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 there were uh, you know addresses and 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 phone numbers for for people to connect with, and uh, and I don't know DPF at its height probably had a couple thousand members, maybe. Uh, now there's like websites, so many different organizations, and in, in different countries, and you know France and Germany, and you know all over the place. I, I seriously thought I was the only person in the world for. Uh, for for all of my childhood and 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 most of my adolescence, but uh, 
mercifully things began to like you know uh, uh, open up a little bit, like when I was when I was when I was, when I was a kid, and and um, and and now it's like, I mean, it's almost it's almost bad because it's so easy to just go there, you know. That uh, like you know the kids today are you know can 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 hook up on Grinder and you know they they they're all <laughs> they're all having a, an awfully an awfully great time. I'm afraid so. Now, when it comes to wearing diapers, is it a practical matter? Is it a just-for-pleasure kind of thing? For me, I can justify it in many different ways, and anybody else can do the same. Uh, for me, it is mostly a comfort. It's an anxiety comfort and also just full comfort and preference of underwear. I don't like the way, you know, for example, some people don't like the way boxers feel. Some people don't like the way briefs feel. I mean, to a to a simplistic manner of saying, I prefer the way most diapers feel compared to, to briefs, boxers, or any other number, um, and that is my personal reason. Almost anybody out there is going to have their own personal reason. You can start categorizing people uh, into certain things as far as it being a sexual you know, need or desire uh, or, a, or even a, a mental anxiety comfort thing or there are probably hundreds of other reasons, but you know those would be those are probably the two more common themes. But then there's probably different branches off of each one of those. Now I don't expect you to answer for the entire adult baby community. I just want to know, you know, you personally, is there a sexual element to the adult baby play for you? Yes and no. Uh, the paraphernalia and I think it comes from. The fact that I see other people that are like me, and when I see other people that are like me, because they are kind of the unicorn in the world, because, I mean, I don't know what the saturation of people to adult baby is. Uh, when you see other people that are into it, there is an attraction there. I'm not sure if it's sexual for me. Like me, I am a very non-sexual little. When I am being in my little headspace, my wife and I do not... My wife does not make sexual advances on me. I don't make sexual advances on her. Now, as you know, the day goes on, or we're getting out of a scene, or it's getting closer to you know our adult bedtime. You know, if things start to transgress that way, then we will we will do our adult activities in that manner. But there is no super turn on for me to have that. But I'm also a unique case. I also suffer from incontinence because of a uh, injury I obtained overseas. There are people who are very seriously kind of, and I, I remember feeling this way. Like, oh my God, I'm embarrassed that this is sexual, and like you know, oh, you know, oh God, yeah, I'm gonna come in my diaper, you know, oh. But frankly, my my first orgasm was in was in a diaper, and 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 the twig was turned. So I gotta say, it, it, it's it's like sexual for like ninety percent of people. For me, what has happened was like I pushed it away for so long, and I got blown out of a Humvee. I woke up in Cologne, Germany, got released, uh, having some 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 uh, bowel issues, um, but it wasn't fully understood until about two years later because my symptoms got progressively worse. I found the need for like adult briefs. And once that need was there, 
all those feelings came rushing back and it was uh, it was almost like being addicted to cocaine <laughs> like like you, you get a little taste of something and now you're trying to find nefarious ways because you're stuck with it otherwise I probably would have hung myself you know you're uh, 23 and you want to go out to a club or you want to go out with a friend and you can't because you know you have to figure out places to change and things like that so I look to the 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 AB community and uh, the fetish community as a whole, kind of as a release. Like, what can I do to make my life better with this? Everything begins and ends with diapers. Are there like other accoutrement when it comes to being an adult baby? It is definitely a sense of everything. Mm-hmm. For some people, uh, it is just about the diapers. Um, and th- those are definitely going to be more people that are definitely more, the, the, you know, consider themselves a DL or, you know, a diaper lover, where the, the focus is diaper. Uh, for a lot of AVs, the diaper is, it's the easiest commodity to come by um, in the whole spectrum of things. Uh, because when you start getting to, uh, when you start getting to other more specific AB things, such as, you know, uh, pacifiers, uh, oversized items like oversized teddy bears and things like that. Even oversized, you know, teddy bears might be a little bit easier to come by than diapers, obviously. But um, when you start getting to the more specific AB things like furniture and, and some of the more specific things like that that you would find, uh, it, it just becomes vastly more difficult. So the diaper in, in our community is, is, is far easier and less expensive to come by um, in comparison to some of the other products. And plus, it's also disposable in many cases. So a lot of people that want something that they can hide easily or possibly even get rid of and not feel um, a, a monetary, a huge monetary loss as well. Uh, the diaper is just something that's very quick, simple. It's instant gratification usually. So it's, it's something that they get to it. But for an AB in, in general, it is definitely more of an all-encompassing thing. Uh, most of the ABs that I know, they can only fantasize about some of the things that others have, such as, you know, an adult-sized crib or playpen, five-foot-tall teddy bears and things like that, things that truly make them feel little in both mentality and actual physical size. For, for a true AB, it's, the diapers is really, the, is really only the beginning, probably, but it's also the most common because it's the most easily acceptable. I have a real affinity towards stuffed animals. Currently, I have like a... I think it's a 48-inch bear that I sleep with, and that's a just about an every-night thing. It's a great pillow. Um, I have uh, like lots of Build-A-Bear things that, because that's a field trip for for mommy and I. Is we'll go and we'll build a bear together, and it's it's very harmless. We're out in public, but no one knows what's going on except her and I, because I'm very much I don't like to go out in public, you know, fully dressed out. Uh, but like if we're at a restaurant, my wife will order for me. Uh, and I will color, and that's that's enough to to put me into my headspace to where I'm happy, and it helps me release a little bit. I have a seven and a half foot tall crib in in, in one of my rooms, and as many people have seen from some of the other stuff, we actually built a five foot tall and seven foot wide and deep playpen that we had out at Folsom Street Fair last year, 2014. Uh, we actually had the first AB uh, DL booth at street fair and we went there and we had oversized wooden blocks that we made specifically for it um there were you know like the old you know abc blocks and things like that we had huge uh three and a half cubes uh three you know three and a half inch cubes made so that you know one of them took up an entire adult's hand 
Uh, we had a bunch of oversized props that we had, we had a five foot tall teddy bear along with the playpen that we had custom made for it. Um, and then also, like I said, I have the playpen here. Um, so yeah, I, mean, I, I definitely had my share of items over the years. There's a lot out there. Go to eBay. Um, just like, look, you know, type in adult baby and, and you'll find all kinds of things, furniture for God's sake. I mean, that's, that's very, uh, that's very fancy, fancy and not, not easy to come by. Uh, and you have to have a pretty, uh, well-constructed life to have room for it, but clothes, um, there's, 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 there's like, you know, lots of that. I have tons. And of course, ciphers, like, you know, uh, there's, there's a bunch of, uh, vendors of adult diapers that are like, you know, just baby style adult diapers that um, are, uh, are, are, are really great. The world's opened up. I mean, with, with, with the internet. When you are kind of in this headspace, cause obviously I'm having an adult conversation with you right now. So you're not sure. in that headspace, but when you are, what are some of the activities that you enjoy? Anything that a two year old would do for me, that, that, the the acting out as a toddler or an adult baby or a baby, however you want to phrase it, um, is for me it is not a sexual thing. So anything that you would normally see a baby or toddler doing is probably something that I I would enjoy doing or that I have done. I, one of the things that I that I've done before. Uh, <laughs> Uh, coloring type of things. Uh, one daddy that I used to know, uh, he came home one day <laughs> when we were living together and he, I wasn't quite sure how he was going to react. And I, I really didn't think about what I was doing when I did it, but it's kind of one of those things where you really got into it. I did color on his refrigerator. I was just his refrigerator, not his walls. <laughs> but uh, I mean, there, there are things like that that you would normally expect a baby or toddler to do, even if being just a little mischievous. And so, I mean, it's, it's pretty much anything like, you know, around those lines, uh, cartoons, cuddling, uh, any, any type of baby toy, uh, you know, those type of things are going to be the essentials. What is that relationship like when it comes to you are in this headspace and you have this other person? What's that relationship like? For me, it is always it's always been two separate things. I have had a romantic or sexual relationship with people that I've also known as a daddy type figure, or or you know that whatever the case is. Uh, that to me, they've never really crossed the lines. I've never I've never engaged in an intimate act while in that headspace. To me, they're they're very separate. Uh, for some people, they're very much one and the same, and that's fine for them. It's, it's just not, that's not what it is for me. For me, it is literally that it's usually more of a, a daddy or figure who's more of a mentor in some cases. Uh, you know, the, the one person that I consider to be a daddy to me, you know, at, at the moment that I, uh, that I live with and I, I really do see him as a, as a mentor of, of, of sense. The, the feelings I get when I'm in little headspace is um, I feel safe. I feel uh, secure with myself. Um, I don't think about the need for catheters or diapers or anything like that. It just kind of becomes part of my world. I, I really do get carefree. Uh, I've been a lifelong martial artist. Uh, the closest that I can that I can relate how I get to Feeling-wise, when I'm in my little headspace is when I'm in a scene or I'm 
my wife is, is doing just the right things for me, I get kind of tingly, but I also get almost like in a meditated state. Like if you've ever meditated before, you kind of feel light. You kind of feel free. And that's, it's very close to that feeling. It's not the same because I'm obviously very conscious and very active with what I'm doing, but there is a sense of release. There is a sense of relaxation and there is a sense of not having to be afraid of anything or having to worry about anything. And for me, you know, I, I have a high stress job. I have, you know, three kids. I have to worry about changing myself 90% of the time. If I'm at home, my wife will change me. If we're together, she'll change me outside or whatever. But for the most part, you know, I live a very stressful life. And when my wife and, and I can play, that all goes away, whether it be for five minutes, an hour, two hours. And even at times when, let's say, we're out at a restaurant and I'm, uh, I suffer from PTSD and I'm just, she can tell when I'm kind of zoning out a bit. And she'll, you know, she'll grab my hand and say, baby, are you okay? I'll say, oh, I'm not feeling well, mommy. And she'll, she'll hand me her keys or something and say, just think about this. So I'll just start playing with keys. Now, I'm not rattling them, but I'll just get into this little space, like, I'll shut off. I just kind of shut off for five minutes. And it's the most wonderful thing in the world because I, ha- I found an escape for me. I know a lot of my friends do not have that escape. How have you seen or maybe not seen adult babies being portrayed in the media? You know, I have seen a lot of different things in the media. I have seen there was a, I believe, a CSI or CSI Miami where there was a person that was a adult baby and it was referencing a, that was the gentleman's kink. And they found this giant nursery behind a, a back door. If we're talking uh, strictly news media, I don't think that the adult babies have really gotten much attention except for, like, there have been people that have pretended to be disabled and put ads out on Craigslist and to get caregivers to come over and change them, which is absolutely deplorable in my opinion. Then, you know, there was an astronaut that drove all the way to Texas a couple years ago because of a love affair that went awry and she wore diapers all the way from like all across I-10, which is a really long highway between Florida and Louisiana. That got a lot of attention. But for the most part, I have not seen many, many roles where there has been that relationship, like a mommy and a baby relationship, or even for that matter, um, not, I haven't seen a lot of uh, dom and a sub relationship or any sort of BDSM because I think it's still very taboo. And so when it's taboo, we have a tendency to stay away from it. So the most part, it's usually as a joke. I think probably the best one that was done was probably CSI uh, when they did their, their ABDL uh, episode. But even then, their portrayal was basically of an overweight old guy, which is not actually the average ABDL person. There's a lot of roles out there and there's a lot of material where there's like the AD, the adult baby clown, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like a figure of fun and, and it's weird because, you know, I, I always love them. I eat it up, but, um, but I, I, I never feel like it's that funny, you know, I mean, I don't know whether that's just me or whether it's John Waters did a movie, um, there was an AD character who's like a police police chief. It's a caricature. 
and 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 very funny. You know, eating Raoul. There's like you know, uh, an A B like he's like you know using like you know so going going to some prostitute and they, you know they, they murder him immediately. There's a zillion of those. You know, it's always just like you know, oh my god, you know this is the weirdest fetish ever, and we're just like totally ridicule it, and you know, and then. On the other hand, there are movies where some kind of part of the psychology and some part of the some part of the scene and and um and and that's really like wildly various, you know, uh from, you know, some you know, of course you, you referenced the baby or, you know, like crazy Mickey Rooney's be the Latia one of one of the most bizarre movies ever. And generally speaking, of course, those those, those things are like, you know, sort of dark and weird and, you know, uh, um but I have to say I I, I a handful of ones that are like kind of bright and positive. I just adore. I mean, I think I mentioned um, a film that called uh, Grow Up Already, and uh, this is adorable boy, and uh, and and you know he's like totally infantilized, and 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 the thing is the the whole mo- the whole little teeny movie is is like kind of a, a hilarious skewering of of all these like you know big budget Hollywood, uh, you know, sort of like bro movies that like, you know, where the, where the guys won't grow up, you know, but, 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 but this thing is, he's like literally in diapers <laughs> and, 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 and he's, and he's super cute. And, and it's, it's just, I just, I just, I just found that like, you know, the nicest, one of the nicest discoveries. There's a lot of A B references that show up in one thing or the other from like, you know, Sylvester Stallone and like, you know, kill your mother or whatever, or shoot you, you know, don't shoot my or my mom will shoot you. I can't remember, you know, who's France, you know. But it mostly it's just a joke, you know. I, I got a script myself that uh I would love to make that's uh, you know, about a like the fraternity hate. <laughs> That <laughs> uh, I think would be would be an extremely fun thing to do, but uh, I haven't I haven't put them together yet. So we talked on the show a few years ago about the film Cruising and the whole idea of the hanky code. Is there uh-huh. a hanky <laughs> for adult babies? I I think that's very old school. You know, if I were in a bar, I would just take my pants. Like you know, you put a diaper pan on your on your back <laughs> in your back pocket. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That tells the story. We're, we're we're beyond that. We've had a couple of good uh, like invasions of of, of 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 one of New York's classic uh, leather bars, uh, the Eagle, uh, lately, uh, where uh, these these pretty boys from from Brooklyn have all like you know sh- showed up in a body, like twenty or thirty of them, and you know we took over the ground floor. I don't know what the leather boys actually thought of us, but we were bought we bought plenty of drinks, so no one's complaining. What kind of support network is there for people who share your same interest? Do you talk to other littles? Is there a AB community? There is a baby community, but it's very sporadic. There are areas that have very large communities, um, but it's also a predatory community, in my opinion. There are a lot of people that uh, want to monetize the fact that this is a, a niche market, so to speak. And I have no problem with it, but I do see... When I first started getting back into it, it was about 2006, uh, there was a couple different sites out there that people were getting on, and there was Nigerian scammers all over, you know. I also find that in the community, a lot of people suffer from 
social awkwardness. Uh, now, granted, this is, I want to say, and this isn't all across the board, but the ones I've run into are the social awkwardness comes in when people have repressed it for so long, like they're, you know, their early 40s, maybe even late 30s, and they're finally, you know, they've either divorced their wife or never got married, and now they're doing this thing, but they don't have the social skills to interact. So somebody will send somebody else a message on a fetish site, and it's completely heinous. But the problem is, is if you get enough of those, when you get somebody else who's genuinely just trying to be friendly and be your friend, you're kind of uh, jaded or um, desensitized to it. There are some staples within the community, uh, some really like very popular people that are not what you know people call binge and purge, meaning they they come in real hard and they're really active in the community, and then they just shut off, turn away, and you're gone forever. And I think that those people are really nice, but sometimes they have to have the most aggressive personalities to survive because of the onslaught of negative they're going to get thrown their way. There are two constants in the ABDL community. The first constant is there's 10 times more men that are into the community than there are women. And the second constant is that those 10 times more men, you're bound to get negative activity. Also, there's the there was at one point in time, there was a stigma that because we wear diapers or we like to be little or play with stuff, stuff out of a bottle and things like that, people associated that with pedophilia, which it was, it's never intended. There's never been a single site that I know of uh, that has ever had children on it that has associated with the ABDL community. Now, granted, I haven't been around forever and I don't speak for everybody, but I have seen, I have not seen that. So to have that kind of stigma, that's, you know, that's a very dangerous stigma. When we want to be the little, we are, we don't want kids to be a part of it. And I think that when, when you have a large group of males that remember, uh, I, I'll go back to what I said before, you find attraction in similarities you find that one person you believe you can share your true self with that's also into the exact same thing, everybody's going to dive on it like a fat kid on a cupcake. No offense to any fat kids, I'm a fat kid too. For ABDL support groups, uh, that a lot of the the social communities have have unfortunately gone to other pay sites or they have gone to, or they've just gone away. Um, And the the largest community... uh, group of people uh, that you can find is probably on a site like Set Life. You know, as, as Snuggy Diapers, we have actually started one specifically for ABDL people uh, that's called iCrinkle, which is I K R I N K L E. And we are using uh, funds from the sales of Snuggy's Diapers to pay for it uh, so that we don't have to uh, charge a membership or uh, go to a pay site, you know, in, in a sliding scale, or even charge ads for that matter. Uh, most companies are not going to actually pay for ads on these small, these smaller sites uh, because the the targeting just isn't there. The the membership is not vast enough, and the there's there's so few ABDL companies that there's no need for most of them to really do advertising. Tell me about Snuggies. Snuggies as a name has been around for a very, very long time. Um, I have a good friend of mine uh, who goes by the name Van Gogh, 
uh, started doing pasties, as they're called, which is really photoshopped imagery of men by putting diapers on the Photoshop. And he started doing this in the mid-90s. He actually started doing it uh, well before that uh, with actual drawings. He had this really long post. It was actually really, really well done on his, on his, Tumblr, uh, his Tumblr not too long ago. Uh, that actually kind of specified, you know, how, it kind of went into detail of how he started as an ABDL person himself and how he grew. Um, and, you know, in the mid-90s, he created the the fictional brand Snuggies uh, for ads. And he, he continued making these ads until uh, about a year ago. And the reason he stopped was that I reached out to him and I, and I told him that, you know, I've I've owned the domain for a long time. We actually almost launched a product back in 2007 and actually had spoken with him then as well to do the art. And I told him, you know, I'm, I'm making this happen one way or another. Um, you know, I, I've quit my job. I am done with everything else that I'm doing. I'm focusing on this. I am, I am releasing a Snuggies diaper by the end of this year. And I want you to design it. I, I really want the person who actually made Snuggie's diapers and has been making the ads for two decades to actually design it. And he was totally on board and he actually uh, designed our first diaper print. That's, that's the very, very quick summary of how Snuggie's diapers came to be. Um, I we actually almost launched back in 2007, but the stock market crashed as everybody knows. And two of our biggest financial backers lost everything and backed out at the same time. So we had to put that on hold. Fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you. If you're young at heart. For it's hard you will find to be narrow of mind. If you're young at heart You can go to extremes With impossible schemes You can laugh when your dreams Fall apart at the seams And life becomes exciting With each passing day And love is either in your heart Or on its way and thank you to our adult baby special guests for coming on the show and taking the time to share with us to get us a different perspective on this show where we're looking at three films related to men playing babies. When we look at all three of them, for me, I say all three of them are worth the watch, but that Mickey Rooney one and uh, Mike, am I still correct to believe that it is – up on YouTube that you put it up there? As of today, yes. So hopefully it will still be up for all time for people to enjoy the Milky Life on YouTube. I would say um, go watch that first because you don't know how long it's going to be around because things get weird with YouTube. But it is one of the craziest, um, oddest films you're ever going to see, especially if um, you, as we talked about before, Mickey Rooney being this, you know, great old time actor who we all remember who used to do, um, you know, sweet little films with Judy Garland in the 40s. It's funny, Rob. I was thinking as we were putting this episode together that we've covered 
quite a few movies with adult babies in them over the years, but we've never really talked about them because there's an adult baby in Eating Raul. Well, there's the connection back to the great Paul Bartel. And then we had a whole adult baby gang in one of the Toxic Avenger films. That's right, the Diaper Mafia, a uh, little satire that Lloyd put together, obviously making fun of the trench coat mafia a la Columbine. And our friend uh, Kayla Janice, she wrote a book or contributed to a book recently about uh, kids on film. And one of the chapters is about this character called Stinky from the old Abbott and Costello show, who I was completely unaware of. But, oh, my God, this guy is the he has this whole like little Lord Fauntleroy kind of thing. And he's about. I don't know, 50 years old, and he is the bane of Costello's existence. So it is just uh, seeing this character who's got this oversized lollipop and the little hat and the little shiny shoes and stuff. I'm like, oh, I guess there's more adult babies than I really remembered in pop culture. So they're everywhere. It's an epidemic. I think uh, some areas need to be tented and gassed. Oh, coming from a German girl, that's not a very good thing to say. I'm sorry. No, no, not very good at all. <laughs> I found it very funny that two of the adult babies that we spoke to went immediately when asked about where they have seen adult babies in pop culture or in the media. They both immediately went to a, an old CSI episode, which coincidentally enough was written by a future guest star on the podcast, Mr. Jerry Stahl. So he was the guy when CSI was doing kind of their fetish of the week episodes for a while there, mostly back in like 2004, 2005, he was the go-to guy to write those things. So I was glad to see his name pop up when I rewatched that one today. In your line of work, do you ever wear a uniform or a dress? No, but I could. Are you a drinker or a stinker? Excuse me? Well, a drinker likes to... and a stinker... I get it. Yeah. We're actually with the crime lab. Nothing here is illegal. It's simply nurturing. Mommy and adult baby play, it's not erotic. Well, Freud had a somewhat different theory, but... Well, I could take you to my playpen. You know, I don't think the department would let me expense it. This is, I guess, uh, a couple years older and adult babies but there has been an article recently and we posted this on the uh, RSVP event page on Facebook of grown adults who are willing to pay for preschool like things they go to a place in of course Brooklyn to color and play with blocks and all of that stuff and uh. have nap time you know because adult preschool is uh, what makes them happy well, we already have that something similar like that here in Philadelphia. It's once a month. It is Philadelphia's premier kink and BDSM event known as the Aviary, which happens downtown at the William Way Center. And when you walk into the foyer and you turn to the left, we they have what is called the Littles Corner. And I'll explain what the term littles means. And I've seen it many a times because my primary is head of security in the dungeon. And I went ahead into the littles corner and it's hosted by a young lady named Q. And it's literally like 
preschool. It's like kindergarten or daycare. And every month I'll have a theme of what is going on. Like um, for Halloween, for October, all those who identified as the littles actually dressed up in Halloween costumes and they did their little parade like you would see at an elementary school. And um, I was promoting Diabolique and Philadelphia Leather Pride at a table and I gave out candy to them and you'll when you go in there you'll just basically see them playing with barbies you've seen them building blocks they'll do some coloring and it's actually you can't sometimes help but regress yourself when you walk in there and i am normal i am a dominant however i did walk in there and i did regress to that 6 year old self in kindergarten where i would build blocks and then smash them all down and so for t- for a small price, we have that every month where the Littles Corner, you get to be, you know, that young self. You can either go to Brooklyn and pay for it or you come down to Philadelphia where we have it every month. You know, the the thing that's funny um, between that and the earlier discussion, and that was something I was going to bring up, but you, you did it for me, was I had interviewed a pro-dom before, and she said that she her main clients were, you know, men of industry, uh, judges, uh, politicians, mm-hmm. things like that. People, yeah. people who make a lot of decisions, they don't want to make decisions anymore. And um, you kind of basically said that, you know, to my mind, there's a sort of similar connection, this idea that, you know uh, – I'm in charge. I want to disconnect. Um, I, I want to get away from all of that stuff. And I think that part of um, maybe the reason why people, when they hear about um, infantilism or adult babies or something like that, um, that it's odd for them is that we spend our whole youth trying to be adults and mm-hmm. trying to be in charge of the world and to be, you know, make the decisions. And just the idea of letting go of that. For some people, it's very scary, and it's hard for them to wrap their head around going, "Yeah, I, uh, I don't want, I don't want to make the decisions anymore." Like the Mickey Rooney <laughs> character in uh, in the Milky Life. I think a lot of people are also, much like me, very shit shy. Let's be honest here. We don't want to change any diapers. And when it comes to being children, working so hard to be adults, and then saying, screw this, I would rather be a child again. It also just goes to show that humans are just so fucking impossible and we can never be satisfied with what we have. But um, (laughs) I think a little age aggression. Like I said, even I, a dominant who could spend 90 minutes, you know, caning and flogging somebody. I went to the Littles Corner because I was talking to Q and she was explaining to um, onlookers what it means to be uh, a little. And I was just sitting there and suddenly I just started letting go. I just fell back and staring into things like the ceiling and just not really paying attention to what I was supposed to be doing, but more interested in the coloring book to my left. So I whipped that open and I started drawing and I found Legos and I built something and I smashed them down and I was stealing toys from other kids. I I guess I have an inner bully, no matter what. It could be fear of, of different things, but I was able to let go and really scare the shit out of other people when they saw me. They're like, is that Fraulein in there? I'm like, don't look at me. Don't look at me. I'm hideous. The, the only thing I can think of, and I don't have kids, but I have uh, family members and friends who do. And the only thing I can think of is when you like get down on the floor and you're playing with the kids. You know, like you're playing with the toys. They're telling you a story and you go along with them. And that's the only thing I can think of as sort of a comparable. But obviously something like that doesn't have 
have a fetish element, you know, in that way for some people who are adult babies. The whole idea of being comforted, being able to just be free, I mean, just that whole safe area where you can disconnect and have somebody make the decisions for you, that kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, bring it on. You know, that, that would definitely help, especially if you get like, you know, free hugs along with it. It's like, yeah, all right. I could definitely see the appeal of many of the aspects of this ABDL kind of thing. I just don't really get the DL thing. I don't see myself really wanting to poop in front of somebody else but otherwise i'm you know hey cool sounds good to me sign me up oh like i said it's um the dl of course means diaper lover and that i guess you could say is a fetish part where pooping defecation as you would um it's still a very taboo subject even because when you're a baby, it's accepted. Because you're a baby, you have no control over your sphincter. You have no, con- you can't even tell that to differentiate that sensation of needing to go. So it's okay. But when you're an adult, you should damn well know what it feels like when you need to use the restroom, when you need to um, take care of the- your business, and doing that in a diaper. You're just, oh my god, it is freeing it's also a bit on the humiliation side some people may um consider that part of humiliation play and when you're a grown man unless you were crippled in war or if you're 86 years old and incontinent you're you're expected to know how to take care of yourself and somebody else doing that for you is like the ultimate rush like yeah clean it up maybe that's a little bit of topish in there yeah Topping from the bottom it very well could be. In all three of the movies that we talked about, mm-hmm. and then with all of the interviews that we did with the adult babies, all the voices that we have heard, or all of the characters that we've seen and the voices that we've heard, have been men. And even when it came to, I just watched a documentary about adult babies called The 15 Stone Baby. And it's, it's a British-made documentary, thus the... 15 stone thing and there's only one female uh, adult baby in that and that relationship is the most strained of all of the relationships that are in the in the documentary and it is so annoying the the whoever made the documentary they just repeated themselves every single time they would get to that particular story they would repeat themselves over and over again that this woman was playing at six years old but her daddy wanted her to play younger wanted her to be like two or three years old and just over and over and over again and there was just something really disconcerting for me hearing this woman calling this older man daddy much more than hearing a man calling an older woman or a woman their same age, mommy. And I don't know what that necessarily was, but I guess there was that kind of almost predatory kind of thing going on when it came to a woman, a younger woman, I think she's 25, and this guy who is older and balding on all this, calling him daddy. Every time they would get to their story, I just got the real skeevies. But it was just, it's kind of funny that it seems like a inordinate amount of men 
are interested in this, at least in what our discussion has been today, are more interested in this or are more subject to it in films than women. Even though I think the story of the baby originally goes back to a story of a woman who was infantilized this way. Well, I want to throw this to you, uh, Frolon, because you are in the King community and, and uh-huh. all of that stuff. Do you find that, um, and, and this is what I was always told, is that men gear themselves more towards fetish. We find more men interested in whatever fetish is fetish uh, than women. It just doesn't seem that women are as, um, like fetish doesn't turn them on as much. Like they're not that focused in that way. That's a generalization that um, has been proven false. You, I think it's more focused on men because with that, it's taboo. For m- women to be submissive, it's okay because women are already perceived as submissive. But for a man, com- a male coming to, let's say, me, wanting to serve me, to be my slave because it is so taboo. And it's just not appropriate, for lack of better terms. There are tons of women out there that are into fetish. You just don't so much as hear about it because it's more of a freak of nature sort of situation when it comes to a man. Now, I will admit I know more male ABDLs than I do women, but... For my experience, um, not in the industry, but at the in lifestyle, a majority of the littles that I have seen at the aviary and out and about happen to be women, cisgendered or transgendered women who are playing certain ages. And it's not just a, it's not just babies. You have the baby girls, you have littles, and the term little is actually an a broader age regression spectrum. So um, they usually identify an age between kindergarten to preteen. So you've got the littles, you've got the lolitas, you've got the middles who are the teenagers and such. You've got the pets and the kittens. But when it comes to adult babies, I see more men. When it comes to the older ages, the baby girls, the middles, the littles, I see more women. But I think definitely it's... Because women, when they're acting young and whether or not it is an act, because there is a debate between, you know, those who are age regressors regressors versus being called an age player. I guess women in general are seen to be needing more taken care of. But when you see a man asking for that, it's just, oh, my God, it's so out there. Men are supposed to be the strong, dominant types. Me being a dominant is still considered taboo in some circles because a woman woman being in charge, a woman having any sort of strength, that's just absurd. Now, go make me a sandwich. (laughs) Fuck you. Are your hands broken? As a pro-dom... Do you have many ABDL clients? Not at all. I normally, when I was practicing um, commercially, I was, oh, I've had pain sluts, but I have not had adult babies, and that's just not my expertise. That's not my field. But they are around. There are certain people who are looking to do the regression, and at the same time see, experience what it means to go from being a a female infant to growing up to be a young woman. I've seen that. Have I personally done that? No, I have not. I experience more age regression 
like I come more face to face in the community. So there's lifestyle versus commercial. When I talk about the work I've done, it's strictly commercial. But the aviary being a lifestyle event, I see a lot more with the age regressors and the baby girls and so forth. I have encountered maybe two adult babies. They were both male. Go figure. Well, I'm just glad that we had so many folks that it volunteered to speak to me on the episode and just... You know, that was really nice that I put up a listing on FetLife and I got a lot of people that volunteered. Um, I did have some people, you know, tell me to fuck off, but that's cool too. Uh. Probably thought I was some sort of like, you know, Jerry Springer, look at this freak kind of thing. But hopefully throughout this episode, people have heard that there is a, you know, a respect here. We're not, you know, doing freak of the week kind of thing. Oh, no. When I say I'm shit shy, it's just normally I have nieces and nephews and when they have to be changed i'm just like no that's why you have parents you don't come to me you just go over oh god go over there but other than (laughs) that you know like i said i've sat in the littles corner at the aviary i've played with some of the littles and um apparently there's going to be a story time um, event where someone is going to be sitting in a rocker and telling all the little stories. And I actually said to my friend, I said, I will totally do it if I could read scary stories. I'd be like this total Miss Hannigan sort of character, but I wouldn't do it to scare them. I would do it because they are just a wonderful group of people that are just getting, to me, it's like they're getting in touch with what they once had and now had lost. And I say to anybody out there, if, you know, you, if you want to regress, I say fucking go for it. I, I see that it is healthy. They're not hurting anybody. There is no, not the ones that I know, there is no connection between um, the daddy daughter thing and pedophilia. Again, that is age play, and that is just role-playing. At least it's not the real thing, which is a hell of a lot worse out there. So, to all the littles out there, and to the Lolitas and the middles, you know, keep on keeping on. I fully support it. All right, let's take one final break and play a preview for next week's show. Here he comes. Careful. All clear. That's it. Heart rate stable. If we don't use human DNA now, someone else will. Regulators and politicians, they tear us to pieces. Millions of people are suffering and dying. What are the moral considerations of that? This is illegal. We can go to jail for this. Human cloning is illegal. This won't be human. Not entirely. It's coming out. It's not due for months. It's slippery. A mistake. Here is something completely unique in the world. Tempty. Clive? Clive? Clive! Elsa, get out! It's dangerous! Days within a matter of minutes. She's perfect. We 
cross the line. What did you expect when you made it? Didn't you have a plan? You can't let her out. Specimens need to be contained. Don't call her that. What's going on? She's become unstable. This is the disaster everyone warns about. A new species set loose in the world. That's right, we'll be back next week with Vincenzo Natale's modern-day Frankenstein tale, Splice, where I'll be joined once again by our good friend, Jamie Jenkins. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Fraulein Von B. And last we talked, it was Singapore Sling lining them up, kicking them back on that episode, and uh, which was fun for the whole family. And of course, uh, before that, as you referenced before, Salo, which of course, as we say, children's fair. What have you been up to lately? Well, like I mentioned before, I'm still involved with the Diabolique Foundation as a member of Board of Directors, and we've just started plans for this year's charity event, which is in November in Philadelphia. I've also started contributing to a horror film site known as The Shock Chamber as a writer of critique and just response to certain films, and I've got some other irons in the fire, so I'm, I'm still out there. Very cool, and we're already working on the next time we can have you back in the projection booth. We've got so many titles that we've been bouncing off of each other as far as what will be the next time that Fraulein Van B graces us with her presence. They're all really good films, and I appreciate every single one of them, even the ones that I'm not um, co-hosting with. So the deeper, the darker, the better. I'm more than happy to contribute. Thanks again, Fraulein, for coming on the show. And thanks to everybody for listening. We've got two favors to ask people that will take absolutely no money and maybe five minutes of your time. Uh, Coming up, I think this drops on the 15th. And on the 19th, it's the last day to vote for the Rondo Awards. So if you want, just go on over to RondoAward.com and vote for us. I think we're Category 23. And if you want to, uh, it just takes an email, say that we're the best multimedia presentation. Makes no sense that we're being nominated for a horror thing, but... I mean, wasn't Jethro Tull once nominated for Hard Rock? I mean, anything's possible. It won the Metal Grammy over Metallica. We'll (gasps) never forget. I'm actually very excited about this because if we win, I hear we get a pocket fisherman. Oh, wait, that's Ron Coe, not Rondo. Okay, Rondo Wards, yes. Make sure you vote. I think Mike and I both need that spray on hair because we're both bald now. Also, there is a thing going on from NPR. Your buddies in NPR here, Rob. They are doing a uh, crowdsourcing for the next great podcast kind of thing. It's their podcast project there's even a hashtag for it out on twitter you know for the kids and all that stuff so you can find out about that over at our facebook group which is facebook.projection-booth.com or just go over to facebook and look up the projection booth and you'll be able to find it or go to our website projection-booth.com we'll have a link over there so just again doesn't take any money just takes a few minutes of your time we would appreciate you know, we just uh, gave you a couple free hours of entertainment. Take a few minutes, do a little solid for us. 
and uh, we would appreciate it. So, you know, if we don't get our way, we're not going to cry. We're not going to throw a tantrum or anything. I just might beat mm. the shit out of you. I'm scared. You should be. We're coming to get you. Mommy. <gasps> no. No. Let's dance in style. Let's dance for a while. Haven't can wait. We're only watching the skies. Hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. Are you gonna drop the bomb or not? Let us die young or let us live forever. We don't have the power, but we never say never. Sitting in a sand pit, life is a short trip. The music's for the sad man. Can you imagine when this race is won? Turn our golden faces into the sun. Praising our leaders, we're getting in tune. The music's played by the...
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.